all right just making sure that we are i like how i'm like i'm gonna make sure we're live places and then i didn't open it anywhere dragon <laughs> i don't I I'll don't do my dragon dance while you're uh, sorting all dance? the tech out in the background. Yeah, because apparently that's a thing now. Uh, <laughs> the dragon dance. Hi, everyone. Are you all ready for the good old dragons of Grand Cathay? Because I'm very much looking forward to this one, <laughs> largely because I haven't played Total War, the third one, yet. So obviously the dragons, to me, are nothing more than this ephemeral thing that exists that i have some loose awareness of that i've read occasional bits and pieces on i know a good chunk about the individual dragons but all of it's sort of second-hand knowledge rather than first-hand so i'm particularly looking forward to this stream i'm particularly looking forward to seeing what the good old lore master of Sotek is going to throw in our direction there <laughs> and what craziness he'll throw back at me with and what do you think of this andy so it's gonna be really good all right yes so Oh man, there's a lot to go over. Uh, mm. So this, and I do want to open with, we're just going to be having a good time of nice, fun lore stream here, focusing on the Dragon Kids. So it's going to take us to a lot of different other places. Um, so we're going to go ahead and jump into it of dragons, 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 dragons. So dragons, of course, have been a part of Warhammer Fantasy forever. <laughs> I think since the very beginning uh, is a safe, safe thing to say. But um the new lore that we got for the Cathayan dragons added a very different uh, set of situations. So before, I think uh, what's important to establish is that before, uh, way back in the mists of time, in the beginning of the Warhammer world. When I was playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Andy was out there playing before the old one showed up. <laughs> but uh, so... Uh, back when the Warhammer world was a single supercontinent and most of the world was covered in ice and you just had the equator being this super crazy jungle where all our favorite dinosaurs lived, uh, most of the world was dominated by a lot of different species that aren't around anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. But there were, of course, a couple of uh, empires during this time that were very powerful in their own right. You had the, you had the good old Famir away in the cold Myers. You had what may or may not have been the precursors or just what are the naga of koresh somewhere else uh but the dominant species were the dragons they were the lords of the skies and they really enjoyed fighting each other uh for dominance and of course they weren't fighting just each other there were other terrible titans of those times um some of the newer lore says that the sky titans were already around at this point yep. and uh the dragon ogres of course were around and the dragon ogres were kind of one of the original main opponents uh of the dragons but the dragons really and truly were kind of the kings of the world and so what uh Cathay did is it kind of stepped into this space of myth where we had a few names uh we had draugnir who is said to be the father of the dragons from according to high elf mythologies uh and he seemed to be considered kind of on par with a lot of the elven pantheon and in i believe eighth edition uh yes in eighth edition he got some uh lore focusing on him and it said that he was a ally or a friend of Ashurin in a sense but eventually, one of the gods, Anathrema, the savage huntress, she viewed uh, Draugnir not as an equal, but as a creature, something to be hunted and to be killed. And she tried to kill him, and that actually got her banished from Ashurin's side and cast out of the court of the gods. Uh, and she's been super salty about it ever since. <laughs> um, 
And furthermore, there are other myths involving Draugnir saying that, like, the Widowmaker, uh, the Sword of Cain, was actually forged using his breath. So Vol uh, relied on Draugnir's flames in order to make the God Killer. Uh, but that's Indeed, just that becomes a part of Kalidor's history all the way through because apparently happened up over in Kalidor as well. Yes, and so, but he's in a lot of ways considered the father of the dragons. However, there are competing myths that, uh, according to um, other dragons or humans that are wizards that have recorded magical histories, there was another dragon named Kalgalanos the Black. Good old Kalgalanos the Black. Who totally was not ripped straight out of uh, Tolkien mythos, but uh, <laughs> Kalgalanos was said to be as big as a mountain range, and he was terribly massive and huge, and uh, seemed to be a main rival of uh, Krakenrock the Black, who is the dragon, the father of the dragon ogre race. The two of them were likely very big rivals, and nobody knows what happened to Kalgalanos. Uh, he was around, and he was said to be so big that he makes modern dragons look like a joke. They are yeah. mere. They are mere spawn spawnlings compared to him, but uh, he. It's, it's also worth adding a small part that most of um, that dragon's kids um, were all of different colors, not black. Mm -hmm. um, and the concept of different colored dragons loosely came from over in the West. That particular dragon's spawn, so to speak. Yeah, and if it makes anyone feel better, Draugnir is said not to have been black. He was likely yeah. uh, a much brighter color. If he was not outright white, he was probably a very pretty blue of some kind. Um, so they weren't all, <laughs> not all of the old <laughs> old uh, big reptiles were the same color. But um, so those were the ones we were familiar with before we get into the new Cathay lore, which the Cathay lore suggests that in the east of the supercontinent, there was another. There was a third super big, ancient, powerful dragon, and his name was Shin Yang. And uh, Shin Yang, it, we actually have a surprising amount of information on him in that there was a really big mountain range. It wasn't by any means the largest, but there was a mystical mountain range where the winds of Azir were drawn like no other. Like Azir was almost pulled to it like its own. It scraped across the top of a mountain known as Kunlan, or it'll become known as Kunlan later. And it said that there was an egg that sat up there uh, in ancient primordial times that bathed in the celestial wind. And when it hatched, out of it came Shenyang. And Shenyang apparently was so, like, he was so. <laughs> embroiled in Azir that it is it, he is almost an Azirian dragon uh, which the concept of dragons of specific winds was introduced back in the uh, old good old tabletop days um, there's implied to be dragons that if they stay long dragons are very magical creatures and if they sit in a wind for long enough or they're somewhere where winds of magic might interact with them uh, it can change them and it can give them certain properties i'd say some of the older ones it's not so much that the dragons themselves changed um because there's not really any real hints particularly with the older lore where the dragon started off as one thing and became another <laughs> thing through the course of its life it's hmm. more that each of the dragons were a particular color and that particular color often came hand in hand with uh, aspects and traits that we now associate with the winds. For example, brew dragons, they came with lightning. Your black dragons came with big poisonous winds. Um, well, as did your green dragons, but a slightly different poisonous wind. Corrosive cloud, very dar, or poisonous wind, very uh, jade, maybe. Arguably rotting, you could argue. Um, and each of the dragons, the red dragons, always spouting fire. They were very closely associated with the winds, but after they were initially written, not before. So they weren't written to match the winds they were written 
And then later on, they were matched to wins. And lore was added that said something along the lines of dragons need magic to keep going, particularly those elven ones, which is why the most of them are asleep. Which also, to a degree, has been overwritten in some places where instead they said many of the dragons just didn't like the heat as the world was moved by the old ones closer to the sun, closer to Seoul, and that heat caused many of them to hibernate. So there's lots of different competing stories here as to exactly what dragons, at least on the western side, are. We've got some pretty strong, clear visions, though, of what they are over on the Cathayan side. Yes, which, just like Andy said, uh, the world changed. So dragons were dominant, and then all of a sudden these aliens showed up uh quite literally they showed it their silvered starships came flying across the skies and they said that place looks like a nice summer home (laughs) Mm -hmm. let's set up shop here and change everything uh so the old one showed up and there's actually a lot of really really cool um subtle references about the relationship between the old ones and the dragons because the old ones were genocidal maniacs in a lot of ways but they liked the dragons um, when they when they actually met the dragons, uh, there was dialogue between them, which is very, very significant when you're looking at the lore, because one of the things that's very interesting about the old ones is virtually nobody knows what the old ones look like. Um, and very nobody uh, that is still around it and is willing to talk about it seems to have had any personal experience with the old ones. And in, the Lizardmen have always held to the idea, the Slons say, that only like the mightiest of creatures could handle talking with an old one, because otherwise it would just melt your brain. Um, <laughs> trying to talk with them apparently was a very stressful experience, because only the first generation Slon were allowed to. Lord Croak and his four Spawn brothers were the only ones that were able to handle talk- talking with the old ones. But so were the original dragons. And I think this is actually a fascinating aspect of the new development for the background. Not just that our pre-old one times have had some extra details scattered across it, but it's that we now have creatures that have potentially directly interacted with the mysterious old ones that shall never be detailed. And you might find that when the studio takes this back with Games Workshop and they start writing their own version of Grand Cathay for their army list, which inevitably are going to come when they do the old world, you might find that they scale some of this back because there's this disconnect with the old ones that they like to maintain. And the idea that there's figures out there that not only remember them, which is not so bad, but can actually recall speaking to them and what they could look like, in some respects, takes away the mystery of them. So it wouldn't surprise me if later lore revisions go, yep, there was indeed Eastern dragons and perhaps other dragons back in that time, but they did not like the old ones. They separated from them. They hated everything that they represented and never talked with them. So it really would surprise me if that becomes the standard lore. Although as it currently stands, it's far more uncertain exactly what the relationships were back then yeah and uh one of the things one of the things that's super interesting with that is uh they have been smart so far in not saying at all whether shin yang or any of the dragons actually had direct contact with the old ones uh there are some implications that shin yang uh definitely saw them uh it seems that even the dragon children may have seen them uh which we'll get into the actual kiddos in a minute but uh, Shen Yang, he certainly witnessed a lot of their works. And what we do know about Shen Yang during this time is that, like all the dragons, he resented their influence. Because 
Shin Yang was very powerful. He had his own little empire carved out, and sure, he was fighting against other giants, uh, other primordial titans, but that was their world. All of a sudden, things started changing. The planet moved closer to the sun. Uh, magic started being far more interacted with and being uh, concentrated through all these specifically designed systems to flow it in particular patterns and all of a sudden like the very star system started changing and all you know the, the local planets were changing everything started getting weird and then the continents got broken up and moved into different places all according to the designs of these very strange creatures that if you go back and watch the original Cathay trailer as Miao Ying says they attempted to control fate they wanted to shape the very destiny of the cosmos and they were messing with forces they did not understand is how the dragons feel about it. And I think that's a really, really interesting thing. If you're trying to imagine what these effectively immortal dragons are like, consider these ancient primordial creatures living on the Warhammer world before it becomes the one that we know and love today. And consider what it would be like for them to feel not just the impact of slight and small changes, but cosmic level world changing shifts happening and possibly all they're aware of is the streaks of silver that came through the sky this on upon silver ships they came and loosely that's the only details that you find about the old ones beyond occasional details here and there amongst the lizardman side but they're so poorly described they get these streaks of light through the sky and then suddenly the world itself is shifting and so many of them are incapable of surviving in the new climate that it becomes. And indeed, almost all of the dragons go sleepy times. Yes. And what's very well noted uh, about um, Shen Yang in particular is that uh, even among the ancient primordial dragons, he seemed very, very magically competent. Uh, because it's said that um, one of the things that I got to, because uh, we've had, I've had a few conversations with Andy Hall um, in a similar interview format like this, which has been a privilege to kind of talk about the new lore, because that son of a gun has like an eighth edition army book for Grand Cathay that uh, he helped Games Workshop and uh, he has it and he won't let me see it. It makes me mad, but you're <laughs> 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 hoarding his treasure over there. <laughs> But uh, despite all of my attempted bribes, <laughs> <laughs> but um, Shen Yang uses magic to resist going to sleep. Um, so where the others all vanish, because like we don't know what we don't know at all what happened to Draugnir or Kalgalanos. It's some hypothesized that they died, but most who kind of understand the way the world works really doubt it, because killing dragons like that is hard <laughs> yeah we're, we're talking ancestor dwar gods of the dwarves required to take these buggers out they're proper proper impressive and most likely to either be asleep or killed by god level entities yeah so most of them vanish uh and uh, just a reminder that the warhammer world is significantly bigger than our world so there yeah. are a lot of places for them to hide mm -hmm. it's said that many of them retreat beneath the oceans or they go into the deepest of the depths beneath the mountains uh but they all seemingly vanish from the world and uh like andy said earlier it's not a hundred percent clear why uh some suggest that it's because uh the way the old ones were messing with everything like the amount of magic that was in the air just it was very strange to them and the they became very sluggish and torpid and they just didn't want to they were tired 
and they just were like, you know what? We can just sleep for a few thousand years and wait for all this to blow over. <laughs> but we'll go take a nap, and when we wake up, all these aliens and their spawn things will be dead, and we'll go back to taking over the world like we used to. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's a super fascinating um period because there's been lots of different authors who've written this in this section in lots of different ways, and most of them have taken a mythical approach. Um, in that they will describe some sort of mythical event that is spoken from from the perspective of somebody actually inside the Warhammer world, and by doing that, it allows you to almost say anything, um, while simultaneously confirming nothing, and that tends to be the case for most of this period. Take, for example, the famous "In Silver Ships They Came" um line. Um, that comes from Finn rare um in the mm. book of days and whilst it might be almost six thousand years old as a quotation it's still nevertheless young in comparison to many of the dragons and they just don't cross over they're such a different set indeed there might be ancient dragons that have just never woken up and i think um uh, to reconfirm what sotek's saying there uh the exact reason why dragons aren't active is uncertain but Younger dragons, particularly of the Western kind, are often, uh, particularly when you're moving through the fourth and fifth and fourth and fifth area, particularly with some of the older white dwarves as well, often directly associated with magic. In that, the more magic there is in the world, the more likely they are to wake up. There's historical reasons for this. It's because it's often, as is often the case with Games Workshop, based upon other fantasy sources. In this case, <laughs> the uh, dragons of Michael Moorcock were all asleep because uh, chaos, in their case, had left the world. And then as chaos came flooding back into the world again because of the actions of the novels, the dragons began to wake up again. And that's somewhat similar to how the High Elves and the Dark Elves have had their dragons because they're so strongly sourced upon the old Melnibonian mm -hmm. concepts. And because of that, you'll find that often there's lots of little lines and theories and snippets put in saying that when the great chaos gates wax and magic floods across the world, it's far more likely that the dragons themselves will begin to stir and say, for example, the Dragon Princes of Kalidor, instead of marching out on their horses because all their dragons are napping, they, all the dragons will come out and come the end times, they'll be swooping through the sky on dragon bats once again. And that's mm. uh, that's super awesome. And it makes for an epic end times every time that you get yourself one of the cycles of the Everchosen. Um, and it makes for some great stories, which is one of the reasons that it's never really disappeared from the setting, even though the core uh, foundations of where it came from have slowly but surely been erased away over time as each of the species have been written slightly differently. Oh, I've just got a burr. Oh, that's, that's your fault. <laughs> Amber alert. <laughs> those, have, those come through occasionally. Uh, anyway, but uh, yes. And uh, to further add to that, that's also something that's explored with like Storms of Magic, is that Storms of Magic mm. can be so dangerous because they can wake up some of these ancient dragons, which totally. happens occasionally because uh, they're they're asleep, but you know they're not dead and they're not necessarily in comas, uh, and they can be disturbed. They can be woken up, which can be apocalyptic level events for certain civilizations, and Absolutely. has been. Um, but like uh, and like Andy was saying earlier, it takes something insane to kill one of these things. Uh, one of the really really famous ancient dragons who does wake up is known as Scaladrak Incarnadin, who mm -hmm. has a uh number actually i think i, th I think scaladrak incarnadin might be the descendant and then scaladrak was the the og one i think because incarnate be right i can't yeah. recall off the top of my head it's in the dwarfy side 
Yeah, because I'm pretty sure yeah. Skeldrak Incarnate is the one that has like a rivalry with mm -hmm. uh Kadran. But yeah, Skeldrak, yeah, Skeldrak yeah, was the uh, uh was the father mother of Skeldrak Incarnate and was so terrifying that uh it got woken up by the dwarves and the ancestor gods were around and there was an epic battle between Skeldrak and Grimnir that was apparently so intense and so insane that Grimnir wins and he does kill Skaladrak but Skaladrak's breath was so hot and its death was so titanic that it created Blackfire Pass yep like a the mountains themselves were burned out and there's yep. like an obsidian pass now because of that and there's a, like a big massive huge mountain on the side where uh um many say that that's part of his old body and it now just looks like a mountain one of the highest mountains in the world's edge and that's also super edge uh, super cool down the black mountains pardon me um which i super like it's um also worth reiterating what sotek says there about the um storm of magic that there's a nice little supplement that basically says magic comes it goes mad here's all the big fucking creatures that come along yeah. as well um <laughs> yeah. and dragons are tied directly into that but again we're discussing here loosely the western ones um because as we move over to the east they've got quite yeah. a different setup but it's also worth saying that's only because we've got a very tight version of them from the grand cafe aspect it's quite possible there's quite a lot more of them hiding away or snuck about in their own individual places that might um surface in a variety of different ways when they eventually assuming they do detail in detail kuresh detail nippon all of which will have their own legends all of which will probably have their own version of the giant flying reptile Yep. So now we're going to head into uh, what can like we're going age, what I like to call age of myth mode, which means we're heading into those foggy times where the timeline is not going to make sense. And we're going to do our best because I don't have, like we said, a copy of this magical Cathay Army book that GW apparently made. Uh, so the timeline is about to get really weird because the dates that we have do not translate very nicely really into don't. the new lore. <laughs> I, I was getting a bit bummed out when it because I've I've obviously been doing quite a lot of boning up for today, and I was, I was looking through. I was going, "What's with this date? And what's with this date?" So, yeah, <laughs> uh, I may be critical of a date or two. Yeah. So there are. Uh, I do have a handy list of dates. Um, some of them, and it's worth noting that there were many attempts made to try and make the old Cathay lore match the new Cathay lore which is good um some of them make the leap some of them it, you know they they got there they just didn't quite stick the landing <laughs> yeah so uh in these ancient primordial times shen yang is watching everything the old ones are up to and he decides that he is going to try and maintain control over what he views as his piece of the world. And apparently the old ones are relatively fine with this. Um, and it does make sense. I mean, they it seemingly invited the dragons to Ulthuan. They didn't mind the dragons being there. Uh, and it's, it's it seems very likely that some dragons were okayed by them. And the ones that didn't went to sleep. Um, so I'm going to add in a bit of potential um, uh, argument, not against that, but a slightly different angle. One of the things we know for certain about the old ones is that they were, for want of a better description, sorcerer scientists. And that's a mm. nice way to combine the sort of things they were doing. And they were 
deep, deep into uh, creating species and manipulating them into something new. There is a strong possibility that one of the reasons they were happy with the dragons being over in, say, for example, Ulthuin, is because they did something to those ones, that they actually changed them. Where, for example, the dragons that are over in Grand Cathay, which may not have been changed, could show something quite different. So there's all, whenever you're dealing with these primordial stories, always remember that there's almost certainly going to be, regardless of what people later on say, a certain amount of old one fuckery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Xin Yang is, uh, we don't know a lot of what he's up to in this time. Uh, it's said that he kind of is watching the very, very, very beginnings of humanity starting to show up. And he observes them from a distance. Uh, he does not care for humanity terribly much. Uh, he seems... Uh, Shen Yang, even in the modern era, many thousands of years later, and having built an empire among humans, he sees them as a useful tool. But not. he does not care about humanity at all. They're um, ants. Yeah, they are... They are they're pets. They're handy yeah. worker ants. They are insignificant little specks that are useful to him, but they die too quickly for him to care. And even if he didn't, Shen Yang, uh, he is often portrayed as very cold. Um, he is not friendly <laughs> to anybody, really. Um, like even his relationship with his children, uh, although it is significantly better than, say, the emperor of mankind to his children, uh, it's still not necessarily the most positive. Screw that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like throwing some shade there. I mean, but, you, uh... you have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is another individual that enters this circumstance. And so this is where timeline stuff gets very, very weird because everything I'm about to go through is said to happen before the coming of chaos. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, it doesn't really make sense to happen before chaos shows up. But we're gonna we're gonna take it as it's been written and see what happens. So one of the things that the old ones apparently might do is that turns out there is a civilization on the moon, um, Manslib, uh, which is known as uh, Wei Yin in the uh, Cathayan language, and this moon apparently has some sort of civilization race on it but during the time of the old ones they get wiped out um we have no idea why um either the old ones decided that they needed to be destroyed because they did not fit within the great plan or who knows what happened uh, like i said timeline stuff is here a little fuzzy because it would have made a lot of sense for the arrival of chaos to have yeah. resulted in the moon getting blasted and everybody dying. And Morsley getting spun out into the... Uh, yeah, that would have made an awful lot of sense yes. indeed. And it's also worth saying that this particular section is also very much, as Sotek said, just to make sure we have this clear, mythical. Um, in that there supposedly, there possibly was, there are these things, this suggests that this is the case. A lot of that language is just being deployed everywhere. Oh, yeah, so... From the moon, apparently, there is a singular survivor, which is an entity known as Quayin. And what's important to say is that Quayin is not a dragon. No. Nope. Um, there's actually a lot of very explicit lines that state she is not a dragon at all. She is a shapeshifter. Yeah. We do not know what her original form is, but uh, a dragon is not it. But when she comes down to the planet, she takes the form of a dragon, likely because she encounters Shen Yang very quickly. Yep. And she mirrors his form. Uh, and the two of them 
begin a relationship. Now, uh, how lovey-dovey they are is up to interpretation. There are no notes about their relationship uh, other than Kuei Yin is said to be incredibly empathetic. Uh, she is she is far more emotional and giving and caring. It's a very notable aspect of her character. Uh, she's said to be extremely emotive, and she cares a lot about pretty much all forms of life that she encounters that she considers wholesome. So, like, she loves humans a lot. She cares a lot about all these little these little people. Um, Chen Yang, not so much, but he does seem to care for his wife at least a bit. I'll also say that there's a nice little detail to add here as well, where um, where you've got the emperor and your empress sitting on the two sides. She's often sitting on the dark side of the yin-yang split. In fact, that's where she sits, um, hmm. which um, is not where, particularly from most Western mythologies, you sit, where you're like, the dark side must be bad, right? The light side is sitting in light and illumination and good. No, they're two halves of one bigger whole, and they require both to work in harmony. So I think that to a degree, you just by the fact that they sit on two halves that tells you a lot about their relationship that without each other they don't work with each other harmony is important that becomes central to everything that Cathay becomes later where harmony is at the core of everything yes and at this point uh they do begin to uh significantly affect one another and balance one another and they become inseparable um oh. all the more all the lore we have about Shin Yang and Kuei Yin, they actually go everywhere together uh, yeah. a lot of the time. Um, a, a story we'll get into later is they even vanish at the same time. Yep. Um, but the two of them uh, begin, uh, they, you know, they become lovers and uh, wed or whatever Shin Yang is like, this is our, I, I'm really curious which of them proposed that marriage is the custom that they should go with. <laughs> I'm curious. Well, she bye. brought it. I, I'd like, say it's perhaps less a marriage, although it becomes a marriage in terms yeah. of what it is in time, but it's nothing more than them swearing to be with each other until the very end of all things. Yeah, I wonder, it's like a part of me wonders if dragons have monogamous relationships or if Kuei Yin like brought that from the moon with her to the dragon. Uh, which yeah, is I, I think a funny it's a, a story. fascinating thing in general, particularly because um, as we reach this point, you, I imagine quite a lot of you are beginning to make your first realizations that none of the Cathayan dragons are, strictly speaking, pure dragon. Only one of them, the emperor himself. The rest of them are half shapeshifter, which will come very much to pass as good old mom shows them a thing or two later. Yes. So speaking of that, Kuei Yin... Uh, Shen Yang thinks he knows a lot, and he does. Uh, Shen Yang is said to be able, he is a master of magic. He's able to wield all eight of the winds of magic. He's able to wield high magic. But from high magic, Shen Yang, uh, he is a celestial focused being. Azir is almost in his blood. Yep. And so he takes high magic and he, instead of splitting it, into only Azir, he seems to focus specifically on forming what we understand as a new lore of magic, which is called the lore of Yang after him. That's where it gets its name from. The lore of Yang is from Shen Yang, and the lore of Yin is from Kuei Yin. And uh, Shen Yang takes the lore of Azir as the main focus and seems to select three complementary lores that shape it into something very bold and aggressive and assertive and fiery and proud. Uh, and that is the lore of Yang. It brings out these very like parts of uh, your soul. It brings out these very like loud, bright, shining elements of anyone who's cast on. It's a very explosive lore of magic. It In wields your face. Yeah, it wields 
the fire of dragons and stars falling to the earth in the form of co dragon constellations. It's a very bombastic lore of magic. Uh, while on the flip side, Kui Yin, coming from uh, the dark side of the moon, so to speak, uh, she brings with her a far more subtle win. Yeah. She, uh, it seems, mostly derived from Ulgu as its main focus, with comp three complementary lords being the other, the other half of that balance, the other half of that equation. And Kui Yin's mastery of Yin being uh, shadow beasts. Uh, oh my God, shadow beasts, metal and death um her lore is far more about spiritualness illusions um emotions perception um it it leans very heavy in particular between olgu and shaish but you can definitely see the influences of uh beasts and metal within it yeah. of how it uh, furthers these manipulations and how it uh, entangles itself with people's spirits, especially. And uh, the two of them introduce their lores to one another. They teach each other one another's lores. And the most important thing that happens in this moment is that Yin teaches Shen Yang how to transform himself. But because he is not a true shapeshifter, his shapeshifting is very limited, and Shen Yang can only turn himself into the form of a human. Um, is what she eventually manages to teach him is that he can turn himself into the form of a man. Um, and his disguise is, it's not a great disguise. Shin Yang's human form is said to be very obviously not human. He has like, you know, you've seen, if you've ever read those descriptions of like, uh, when a celestial being in our world's mythology or like 40k's mythology with the emperor like when someone like that takes a human form they're radiant you're like oh clearly that's a god <laughs> you know that's no man um that's how shen yang appeared whereas the moon empress is flawless yeah. she blends in so well that i doubt anyone even like the most perceptive of wizards would probably be able to tell because for her it's not necessarily a spell ability it is a genuine ability yeah um which is crazy to think about um so you have these two dragon yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so for her it's just a, it's just it, it, being a dragon is just as uh convincing as being a human Yes, so the two of them begin wandering what we know as Cathay in human form. They begin uh, speaking with humans, getting to know the humans, and Kuei really leads the charge on this. She is telling Shen Yang that they should try to understand humanity, that there is something valuable here. Now, Shen Yang interprets some of that, uh, internalizes some of that, but he seems to internalize more of there's something useful here, um, and that humans can be a useful tool he can build a nation here he can um bring these humans together now this is where the, the like i like we said with like the moon thing makes a lot more sense after chaos this part also makes a lot more sense after chaos which is this about whole section timing wise just makes me shake my head yeah so it's worth as noting, it currently stands it's worth noting that the unification of cathay is not supposed to really happen uh and until 1800, like red minus 1800 pardon me it's got it's, it's like thousands of years away yeah yeah so there's a there's a big gap there because chaos shows up in like minus 50 
5,800, something like that. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good anything from, because they do tend to mess around with the dates of various points, but the simplest one is at, probably at the earliest 10,000 years ago. Um, and chaos, they're definitely at war, and it's coming to some sort of conclusion around about seven, five hundred years ago. Um, so yeah, a good, yeah. a good 2,500 years worth of war, approximately, plus some on either side, depending on which book you go for. Um, initially, way, 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 way back in the day, it was generally always approximately 10,000 years before the time of Sigmar, but that sort of that sort of there we go but pre appreciate you showing together. up on the screen Shinya. Yeah, thank it, you it, it was super <laughs> handy thanks um but that sort of fumbled together to being just ten thousand years ago so around about seven thousand five hundred years back when it all went tits up but approximately both those dates do it's a long 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 time ago that's all that really matters um yes. but it's 1,800 years, well, minus 1,800 years, that the Great Bastion goes up and it's all bound together. We have a long period of time here. A real yes. one. So what the new lore apparently tells us is that in this gap, but so between the old ones arriving and the messing with the planet, which takes them a good while. Um, it could be forever. Yeah, and uh, Quayin comes down, um, the two of them begin having children. Kids. And uh, once again, Lore here gets immediately fuzzy because they're hilariously, despite the fact that Thalor is like less than three years old at this point, it already has some contradictions, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> so um, according to the most recent lore we have, being the new short story by David Geimer, the first child born is Shiyama. And uh, one of the things that's very, very interesting about the dragon children and I suspect implies that their their conception is not as, uh, how do I say this? It's not as natural as it may appear, is that each of the dragon children corresponds to a wind of magic. Yeah. Um, except for there are nine of them. So there is a there is a bonus child who we have no idea what the situation there is. We don't know if they were a combination of the eight winds as a child mm -hmm. or if they were the rejection of the eight winds as a child. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Or but, something completely different or just another wind yeah. that we're not aware of. Uh, yeah. yeah, Lore of Ice Dragon. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's, a, here's a nice dragon. Here's a something different dragon who can particularly see. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll carry on. Yeah, so so we have Shiyama. Uh, Shiyama is the spirit dragon or the death dragon, which uh, Cathay understands the eight winds of magic, the way it is taught to them by Xin Yang and Kui Yin. They understand uh, magic differently because the dragons do not describe it like the elves do. Mm -hmm. um, the dragons describe it as, instead of the lore of life, it is the elemental wind of water, uh, also known as the storm wind. Um, it's their version of the lore of life is actually a lot more scary, um, in appearance of uh, it's a lot more bump. It's a lot more cloudy and thunderous, which is what, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, their lore of fire, elemental wind of fire. That one's easy. Uh, the lore of metal is known as the elemental wind of iron, yep. uh, specifically, uh, likely cause that's the it's first metal that they understood very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, the wind of death is no or is, the lore of death is known as the elemental wind of spirit to the Cathayans. The lore of beasts, very interestingly, is known as the elemental wind of wood to the Cathayans. That one blows my mind of all of them. Yeah. Which, yeah. And then we have uh, the wind of heavens, which my is my favorite because it actually makes a lot of sense and 
solves a lot of really fun conundrums is known as the elemental wind of stone to the dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have a uh, light, which is the elemental wind of light. Easy. And then who am I missing? Shadow, which is shadow. known as, which is known as the elemental wind of shadow. So uh, thankfully there are three, there are, there are three or four direct translations and then four that get a little interesting. So um, the firstborn, as I said, is Shyama, the spirit dragon. And Shyama, we actually have a description of her, which is just that she appears blind or she has kind of eyes that look dead and likely see things. She likely sees a very different perception of reality than anything else does. Um, being so intertwined with uh, the Shaiish which has some crazy properties, which if you haven't, go watch our uh, Winds of Magic stream uh, episode that we did because there's a lot of cool stuff there. But what's interesting about Shiyama is her uh, her visage is described that she has hair that is multicolored, which is very bizarre. Um, it's interesting as well because it does suggest that perhaps they could move off just the core basics of the winds for them and that may become a later development because it does in some respects restrict these creatures which are majestic and extraordinary and in many respects the equivalent of Cathayan gods um, but they are in some respects restricted to a wind while simultaneously not being so when you actually use them it's a bit there's, there's there's some leeway that's being built into it there yes and each of the dragon children should be note they do not purely went well wield yeah. one wind of magic they wield high magic functionally mm-hmm. uh and now they levitate towards the wind that they themselves are embodying because they have a natural affinity for it and it seems to shape a lot of who they are as an individual yep. uh which makes sense and uh Shia- what's very interesting about shiama is shiama apparently is born very very early like very like very early after Kuei Yin and Shin Yang meet one another, but she also dies very early. Um, Shiyama is said to pass away before the birth of the, or the, I don't, I have no idea if they were eggs or if they were live birth, who knows, but uh, well, <laughs> I can, Yang- I can guarantee something. Um, we did a stream um, with Andy Hall on the rookery um, and the question came up, how were they birthed? And the answer was, I don't know. <laughs> we do know. Yeah, we do know that Shin Yang came from an egg because there's a whole thing about his egg, uh, the egg he was uh, birthed from. You like little pieces of it infuse the Kunlan mountain range with the uh, the magic of Azir. But um, uh, if they were born as dragons, it was probably eggs, which is very likely. Um, dragons are their true forms, so I think eggs is safe enough bet. But in any event, uh. Uh, Shiyama, we have no idea how she dies, which is a really fun mystery. Um, if you actually look at the map for Grand Cathay in Total War Warhammer, there is a very specific place um, down in the southeast of Grand Cathay known as Shiyama's Rest. Yep. Um, which seems to heavily imply that is where she died. Um, and, yeah, and it's uh, it's 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 technically uh, connected to the uh, the uh central uh central Cathay and the celestial riverlands but it's very very close to where uh central south and east Cathay meet right next to one of the rivers i'm particularly given that she's said to be sleeping under the river down there anyway and it's it's quite a bit further south from there but still it's all in the same area yeah so one of the fun mysteries um that i actually want to speculate for a moment on is what happened why Mm -hmm. did shiyama die and i i think there's two really interesting theories the first is that Shiyama was destined to die. 
or may have like her death may have been purposeful by her parents or herself and not a incident per se, or she was killed um, in a battle during that age. Cause even when the old ones are around, the world was not safe. Um, there were a lot of big bads running around. Dragon ogres were still a, a notable force to be reckoned with. Uh, the Famir were still around uh, and were fighting because the li- the the lizard men dominated a lot of the planet, but they were not able to dominate everything. The old ones were sending out literally legions of millions of Saurus that were ex- there's literally a war of extermination that takes place across the world where the old ones start looking at races and going not part of the plan, not part of the plan, not part of the plan. And the Saurus are sent out to butcher them, but they can't kill everything because the greenskins are introduced during this time um, on accident, literally being an invasive species, which is hilarious uh, <laughs> because one of the old ones didn't go through customs properly. <laughs> he tried to skip customs, the son of a bitch. <laughs> um, but, uh, so Shiyama could very well have been killed. Um, she could have been killed by greenskins. She could have been killed by a dragon ogre Shaggith. Um, I personally think it would be amazing if it turned out she was killed by like Colex Sun Eater or Kraken Rock the Black or one of these like big bads that we have a fun name for. I think it's also worth saying that we've got the potential that um, with the coming of chaos, something happened there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Because the world itself changes and the things that keep things alive change. The the winds of magic change. Magic itself, depending upon how it existed before, completely changes. Everything in the world changes. Um, And you could easily tie it up to not necessarily the event itself, but potentially even the build up towards that event. Um, there's lots of fun potential stories that could be told here as to exactly how she passes on. It could have just been a natural development of her own self. She herself being so closely associated with death, um, as we come to know later, uh, and she effectively becomes the more of the realm, for those of you who know your empire lore, more the god of death, um, and ferries souls over towards the ten, whatever it is, celestial courts, whatever it is that lies beyond. Um so she's still doing stuff much like a god. So it could have been a natural process. It could have been something that she chose to do herself, even mm-hmm. if it was a sacrifice, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, Gideon, we're getting there. Don't worry. Thank you. Thank you very much for the, the super chat. But don't worry, we're getting there. <laughs> um, I will say also, uh, <laughs> CB, hi, I'm a shapeshifter from the moon. Let's make babies, the changeling. <laughs> uh, something, something. Uh, something, something Loki turning into a female horse, something, something, (laughs) but, um, my, I will say I have a personal theory that I like though. It's heretical and it's very difficult to make work in this timeline. Love heretical theories. I, I honestly think, uh, to me, I think the ogres killed Shiyama ogres because, uh, one thing we'll get to later is Shin Yang hates the ogres. Uh, he almost wipes them out and there are some explanations for why he does this, but I've always found the modern explanations to be very weak of like, Oh, they started eating the peasants. He doesn't give a shit about peasants. <laughs> Shin Yang doesn't care. But if they killed his daughter, I think that would be a grudge that would last for a long time. 
And the ogres being wiped out actually happens a pretty freaking long time ago. It actually happens before the founding of the Great Bastion. Which, in many respects, again, sort of... Uh, yeah. It feels like it should be older. Yeah. But, because, uh, yeah. who knows? Maybe because the old ones were still around at this point, the old one that created the ogres was like, Shen Yang's like, I'm going to kill those ogres. And he's like, ah, ah, it's one of ours. You can't kill mm. those. They belong to us. And he had to he had to bide his time. <laughs> but in any event, uh, Shiyama passes away and her we don't know if her body is taken per se, but her essence, what is left of her as the spirit dragon remains somehow tethered to the mortal realm. And she is taken to the north uh, next to where Kui Yin and Xin Yang have founded what is known as Wei Jin, the celestial city which is literally a floating city uh, up in the okay. skies where Xin Yang uh, and his wife spend a lot of their time away from humanity, um, literally in a floating city that you can't get to unless they want you to be there. And they are already working on some projects, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. But Shiyama is taken north and she is laid to rest beneath the Spirit River yeah, or the Dragon bad. River. And the Dragon River flows from Weijin all the way out to the Jade Sea. And uh, she is laid to rest beneath it, uh, supposedly. Now, once again, was her body put down there? Just her spirit? Who knows? But what we do know is that she's definitely down there in some form. And in her death, her enmeshment, I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. With, oh, yeah, with the lore of uh, the wind of death becomes absurdly more powerful which makes sense because death is would kind of naturally be repelled by a living individual and uh she becomes so radiant with death magic that the river itself becomes a river of death if you try to cross it and you do not have the blessing of the dragons um you will just die you will you will instantly die um, there are hilariously, there are uh invaders from the chaos waste and the eastern steps that try to invade Cathay every year across the Dragon River, and they always die. <laughs> they die, and it's it's said to when you see them, it looks like they almost died peacefully because there's no sign of battle, there's no sign of uh damage, there's just a bunch of corpses. It's like they all fell asleep. Um, now, it seems vaguely implied by some uh, various quotes and some notes that have been made about the Dragon River that what might happen is when you start crossing the river, spirits and like hands start literally coming up out of the water and grab your soul and rip it out of your body and drag it down into the river, which is terrifying. But Dragging it down. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Stream's over. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> So uh, that uh, so that she's down there and we will come back to Shiyama in a little bit when we talk more about uh, when we get a little more away from the timeline stuff. Mm -hmm. But she goes on to functionally create an underworld um, and it is the Cathayan afterlife, which yeah. is insane because it's not it. It's very strange that she is said to she is dreaming down there. Um, it said that Shiyama in, is in a death sleep. She is dead, but she is also slumbering. And her dreams are said to be the Cathayan afterlife. 
where the spirits of the ancestors being the humans that die are guided to after they die and they continue to exist so that their wisdom and their power may be leaned upon uh, when needed for Cathay in the future, which is wild. It's totally wild, particularly because it does suggest that her death was not a death as we understand it. Um, as simple as that. Uh, mm -hmm. or alter because we know certain things are true. They're not gods. They're definitely not gods. In fact, if anything, they're quite anti-god in general. So yes. um, the courts of Shyish that are dreamed into existence down there are quite discreet and separate to the other afterlives as we understand them. And that's fascinating. Super interesting. Yes. And it's it's very... Um, it's... <laughs> Malignard, thank you. I guess. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so one of the things that's very interesting is I'm going to keep saying this multiple times throughout this conversation of that. This gets weird with the timeline stuff, because why would Shin Yang want to make the Dragon River impenetrable to cross if chaos was not a threat? Yeah. Um, now, you could argue that maybe the Hobgoblin Conate already existed or was starting to emerge but this is very very early for that it's too um, early for that if, it, if we're talking before the coming of chaos it's pretty much too early really yeah honestly i i am growing more and more of the opinion that the dragon kids probably should have been born after the coming of chaos but uh it in does any make a lot more sense if they have been or alternatively they were born during the coming of chaos and and the war is going on um, yeah it's in progress, and that immediately makes more sense for a whole host of things that happen during this era. Yeah. Now, yes, like Quora said, that is very true. It could be that Shen Yang saw what was coming. That is very distinctly possible. Uh, he is very tied up with Azir, and there's... I, I will add, though, that there was possibly no Azir at that time. Because yeah, as near as we understand it, came about because of the collapse of the chaos, well, what became the chaos gates. The winds of magic as we understand them are very much a product of the immaterial world flooding into the material one. But at that point, before the coming of chaos, who knows what it was like? It's very possible that they, they weren't using magic at all as we understand it. And comparing and trying to use current lore to make sense of the previous era doesn't really work the more you think about on it and the more you look at the mechanics of it the more you realize that that just doesn't fly sadly yeah uh yeah i am i honestly think if we ever get enough which we will for the old world but i think when they actually like sit down and try and work everything out i think they'll come to a similar realization and be like let's just fudge them a little bit after because yeah. it still it still makes them older than like all the gods except for except for the chaos gods when it comes to the kids um which they are always happy to brag about but in any event so uh that's in shama is kind of worth was worth doing on her own for a moment because it uh, her brother um Yuan Bo uh, hey, talks Yuan. about that none of the other kids knew Shiyama. She died, as far as they uh, understand, she died before any of the rest of them were born. Um, so then the rest of them are born. We do not know their birth order. Um, we we have some hints. We know Miao Ying Miao calls Ying. her. She calls herself Probably the yours. eldest daughter. Yeah. Um, it is very likely she is the second born. Um, and I guess she calls herself the eldest daughter, and what she technically means is eldest living daughter. <laughs> and possibly just el eldest. 
because you know she's the eldest and a daughter so be aware that that could be the case that she is both eldest and daughter and she just conflates the two yeah and then uh i would suggest that yuan bo is probably after that because he has a lot of authority and a lot of power especially among his siblings the only one of his siblings that is often considered most favored beyond him is miao ying uh, and Yuan Bo is, he's very balanced and he, he's a safe hand. Yes. Um, <laughs> after that likely comes, who knows? After, after that, it's a total toss up. The youngest we know are Zhao Ming and Shen Zhu. Um, so Yuan Bo, uh, or Miao Ying is who we'll probably talk about next. Uh, Miao Ying is the dragon of water or more accurately, the storm yeah. dragon. Mm -hmm. uh, she is cold and aloof as we have heard uh, I don't think you were uh, around for it, but the marketing for her got a lot of memes made about it because every single time they published an article about uh, Miao Ying, it said she's cold and aloof. Every single time <laughs> they included that note, everyone's like, we get it. <laughs> but um, bring up that point from Gideon because it's a good one. Um, so uh, I, to answer this one specifically, you've got to realize that almost everything is written from the perspective of the current thinking. Um, so everything would suggest that it's whatever Azir was beforehand, and it may have been Azir. It may have been Azir plus. It may have been Azir plus plus. It may have been a completely different force that resembles Azir so much that that that's more than enough to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, the proto world, the one that existed before the old ones came along. Um, the only thing that we can say for certain about that is that it was freezing. As we understand these things, it was mm. probably uh, a Pangaea like continent and that it probably had a lot of species on it that we are aware of today. Although many of them may have come because the old ones created them and we just think they're that old. Um, uh, the Fimmer, for example, sitting there because they often are described as sitting before, but in some places, but in others, they were created in others. They were humans and others. They were actually Skaven. So there's lots of different <laughs> tales that tie into each of them. Um, so I, I would loosely cover that one with a, huh, it's complicated and Games Workshop themselves don't know. And each writer is attempted to do something. And as each new writer comes in, they'll probably change it yeah uh so um breaking down the dragon children in no particular order just to kind of cover their bases as far as what we know about them uh and how they have wider impacts on the world actually before i do that i'm going to finish the timeline stuff very very briefly oh, yeah. because right everything right. else timeline related uh actually gets a lot more solid which makes it a lot faster mm -hmm. so uh the dragon children are all born um some point during this mess chaos shows up <laughs> and chaos literally punches in the door and declares war on everybody mm -hmm. and it's a mess demons are pouring over the continents uh from everywhere at once and while the demons are not endless in the sense that it's a never-ending tide they are endless in that when they get beaten back they will always return um and they're evolving um so I, I think there's a few things to um loosely add here number one is magic floods the world which is why the demons keep coming um, mm -hmm. And this was a change from the original lore. In the original lore, humanity arrived. Um, and a variety <laughs> of mentions to that. Machines arrived. 
a whole host of things arrived as the chaos gods came however that got completely changed um uh, after about sixth edition around about there in warhammer times when there was a lot of thought and they were like no wait a minute humans can't be around at that point they didn't exist ah uh, and they turned it to demons so the very first ever chosen for example who was originally morkar who was originally a human and was originally defeated by an Aryan, an Aryan, whichever, uh, no longer exists and is moved to a different point in the timeline. And this entire period has gone through multiple rewrites. So you must realize that as things are iterated here and we describe various events, not only are the events that have been rewritten multiple times, they're almost certainly going to be rewritten, rewritten again. again yeah <laughs> so be aware of that as um sotek goes through everything but yes. the really really big one here is humanity because humanity probably does exist by this point because yeah. it's multiply stated that either a the old ones elevated them during the war to help them during with the war and that's stated in a few sources or alternatively humanity just existed on the world already and that spans all the way back to original novels drachenfels for example mentions that humanity in a proto form was there at that point um, i always like to call drachenfels warhammer vandal savage <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then you also have other sources that um, hint that when the Chaos Gates yawned open, humans came along with that too. So be aware there's all sorts of conflicting tales here. Some of them are ancient, some of them are uh, new. But if you take a look at what the old world is doing, they're looking at a lot of the older material and they're updating it and telling those stories again. At the very beginning announcement for it, they mentioned half-orcs, for goodness sake. How does that work? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense at all, but they mentioned it, which means that they are looking back at the older material and they're going to be synthesizing some of it in. So we might find ourselves with a completely different retelling. So take everything we're saying here with a certain amount of it will be changed. Yes. And uh, and I will say that a lot of the stuff I'm going to be saying is my favorite versions. So like my, because <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't have to, I, I'll leave it to Andy to deal with the alternate versions. I'm like, totally happy to go. No, yeah. <laughs> like my my favorite version is that uh, is um, you know humanity gets created and humanity is the tipping point for for chaos. Humanity is a race that is so emotive, so has so much connection. There's so many of them; they propagate so quickly that it is finally what gives chaos enough to tip the scales and they blow up the warp gates and the halflings oh. and ogres. I would argue, if you're looking for the one that they've stated it's most going to be, just to give a counter-argument, um, it would have been the elves, because they were the most emotional. And they had deep, abiding emotions that were so unlike any other species. So strong and so powerful that gods birthed around them. Arguably. I would, I would agree, but counter-argue that there weren't enough of them for chaos to be strong enough to blow the gates up yet. I or think humanity's... I think humanity were they just destroyed by the coming of chaos. Mm, that's fair. I, I think I think they were stuck on their little island. I think the old ones they were the old ones' prized golden retriever that they kept on their <laughs> special little in their special little kennel, in their little garden, <laughs> <laughs> being being taught magic on Lord Croak's lap. I mean, even then, I mean, just saying that if they were just on that island, that island has got more than enough space to host a billion souls. True. Yeah. Well, yeah. There was definitely a lot more yeah. elves. There's probably yeah. more elves then than there ever was ever again. But yeah, uh, exactly. sadly. But uh, in any event, that doesn't anyway, matter. It so, doesn't matter. Uh, it, it, uh, shit happened. Yeah. So humanity <laughs> exists, uh, and there are a lot of humans in Cathay. Um, 
Uh, there's a lot of human tribes and they are all separate. So when chaos shows up around this time, the dragons throw themselves against the demons because they realize very quickly that chaos is not great. Um, chaos is a threat. It, it's like animals are like shifting into new kinds of animals. A lot of people have turned into beastmen. Shit's getting crazy. And the dragons uh, start fighting against chaos and Shen Yang and Kui Yin go around and start unifying the human tribes. Um, now it's not exactly clear how they unified them. It's likely a mixture of force on Shen Yang's part and, um, uh, pleas for, uh, unification and more diplomatic means on Kui Yin's part, but they unify a massive amount of human tribes. Um, and Grand Cathay, cause Grand Cathay is massive. It is a fucking huge country. Um, almost the size of a continent. And, uh, the, when the dragons unite, they are not unstoppable by any means, but they are as close as you can be to it. And that Shin Yang and Kui Yin specifically are said to be so powerful that they are borderline godlike. Yeah. Um, and because they're ancient, like they are so, they're both incredibly old. They understand magic very, very well. And they seem to adapt to what magic turns into like mm -hmm. the elves do. They adapt very quickly. Um, where it's like one of the things that dooms the lizard men in, in the early, like first 1200 years of the war is that the slons struggle to get a handle on how magic has changed um, yeah. because they're used to it being very precise and very specific and chaos is very wibbly wobbly. And if you lose control of it, it makes you blow up. So all the uh, winds have gone mental, assuming yeah. they were winds to begin with. Yeah, so the Dragon Kids, we can only imagine how insane and epic of a scale the conflicts were. Uh, based on art we've seen, Shen Yang is said to be a, a massive golden dragon uh, who's of incredible size and is able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with literally anything the Dark Gods can throw at them. Kui Yin's out doing God knows what and who knows what forms that she takes in battle, if she even participates in battle. I wouldn't actually be that surprised if Kui Yin does not do direct conflict, uh, but uses more subtle forms of fighting, uh, which would that actually be very, which would That'd be, be nice. extremely useful against legions of demons, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, their kids are participating. Mm -hmm. And what this culminates in is while the 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 Dragon River uh, acts as a very nice natural border, there's this huge gap between Wei Jin and what we know as the ancient giant lands. Um, these really really scary huge mountain range mm -hmm. um and so the dragons the chaos keeps flooding in mainly from the north but also from the south and the dragons just are holding them off and then the vortex happens so the dragons do not really manage to get anything going as far as building up new defenses until after the chaos is defeated or and a long time after yeah so thousands of years pass chaos is pushed back a lot of magic floods out of the world and it's it apparently this leads uh to Cathay kind of forming but maybe not necessarily being as big as it's going to become later as they start expanding further and further out because uh, it's likely their empire probably got pushed in a lot by the demons. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, we've got very few actual dates around here beyond mm. the ogres becoming the ogres and the Great Maw forming, which happens before the uh, Bastion and the forming of Grand Cathay as we know it now. But there's some 2,500 years or so where shit is happening here, but the details that we have for the shit are scant. 
Um, we're just aware that there is some shit happening in this area and that Cathay definitely exists before it's all banded together into Grand Cathay. Yes. So, yeah, like Andy said, literally the time between the birth of Sigmar and the modern time is how much time there is between the defeat of Chaos and the Ogre incident. Um, so, the Ogres. Uh, as far as how they interact with the dragon, the ogres used to live in a beautiful verdant plain where there were large beasts that roamed and the, the ogres were a migratory species that followed the herds of beasts around and life was good. But And they were very strong allies, apparently, with Cathay. There, there are even legends and rumor, or there are even legends about the ogres standing side by side with Cathay during the time of demons. Um, it's uh, worth adding a small note here. When the ogres were completely updated, when the first ogre kingdoms army list were added, um, originally it was going to be ogres and halflings together banding about doing their thing. But oh, that would have been adorable. instead. Um, but uh, I do the, like noblars, but yeah, yeah noblars <laughs> are pretty cool too. Um, and the halfling connection to the ogres was never removed. There was a lovely piece that was actually up on Games Workshop's website. It never actually hit anywhere else for i'm not sure if it ever hit anywhere else but it was the discussion of the old ones creating near near the very end of the war against chaos halflings and ogres from the same material they're basically yeah. the same sort of species but split in two very different ways both of which are consumed by their hungers both of which have got a particular purpose that the old ones had for their greater plan and that the ogres and uh halflings were both meant to be almost anti-chaos in many respects but the halflings of all things were more successful in that they were mm. almost entirely immune to chaos where the ogres most certainly were not um but it was uh, a last ditch attempt and the civilization that eventually becomes the ogres came from that and was not the civilization that became the ogre kingdoms they were a completely different type of species that were meant to be working hand in hand with another in this particular case probably the halflings in some respects mm. consider them almost like the brain boys of 40k um that were meant to be helping the orcs um the halflings in many respects were meant to be helping the ogres but that sort of fell apart and to this day it's written into warhammer fourth edition fantasy uh, roleplay halflings still corner empire uh, ogres across the empire oh yeah because the ogres just follow them they yeah. do what they want and yeah that is that is included in the programmed into them they did include then the eighth edition ogre kingdoms. Oh, um, also, Cleo, hello, I love your channel. Hey. You, you do awesome stuff. She's a history teacher in Australia, she's super awesome. You roll, uh, I've never met you, but you're brilliant. And uh, anyway, she, yeah, she plays a lot of total warhammer. Anyway, so uh, moving on. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the ogres apparently had a fairly good relationship with Cathay, they helped them fight a lot versus a lot of things. And like I said, we have no idea what happened in these thousands of years. It's likely there was a uh, there was a lot of fighting against other forces uh because chaos while they were defeated and pushed back there were a lot of different species that got empowered by chaos because they formed bargains with the dark gods the dragon ogres for instance a lot of humans for instance uh and who knows what other species uh and there are beastmen everywhere and in a lot of that vacuum that was left behind by chaos suddenly vanishing green skin started to show up like crazy they just swarm into this, uh, these gaps. So Cathay's busy fighting against a lot of these different various forces. And uh, what ends up uh, happening, we don't know what causes it, but there is some sort of schism between the ogres and Cathay, most notably with Shen Yang. 
something happens. Um, we do have some notes that the ogres become too populous, that there's not enough like natural predators, so to speak. <laughs> the ogres, like deer, uh, begin to their population explodes, and they are. Uh, As I recall from this section, um, don't they have a different emperor named, and you just basically have to pop the new emperor on top? Yeah, there, there is yeah. actually uh, there's so in Cathayan lore, there's a fun thing about this, which we will actually talk about in a little bit. There's Good. a lot of I don't know this. But... Yeah, there's a lot of fun Cathay lore from the older editions, uh, mm -hmm. especially some actually get very, very specific and like name specific emperors. Yep. And so there is a there's a note in the new Cathay lore that what happened apparently is that Shen Yang does not meet with anybody pretty much. Uh, he very rarely deigns to bother with dignitaries from other nations or meet with anybody. So what happens is that a lot of people would meet you on bow or they would meet a, or, yeah, mm -hmm. or they would meet a Shukin gun, one of the descendants who we'll get into in a minute. And they would assume that person was the emperor and the Cathayans very specifically do not correct them either due to a mistranslation error or because the Cathayans are fine kind of wielding that power in that dynamic. So it has led to all these situations of other cultures thinking they have met the Celestial Dragon Emperor and they go, oh, I met so-and-so, it's the Emperor. When in or, reality, they met some so smaller dignitary. potentially be, although we've not moved that on to this yet, potentially dragon-blooded kids as well who are uh, being... Yeah um misunderstood by others so they've been called emperors i i reckon you could write that pretty easily that would work really well um and yeah 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 that works got yeah. it yeah happy yeah so in any event um the only thing that we have says something along the lines of uh, the ogre kingdom's book populates it though hilariously it's told from a perspective of humans trying to understand what happened from the empire because the ogres don't care like they don't give a shit it's in the past who cares uh, so what happens supposedly is that the ogres grew too numerous and they begin eating the people of Cathay because they're hungry and they have grown so populated they are no longer able to survive um easily just on the the creatures they used to hunt and some ogres develop a particular taste for man flesh um which does sound like ogres to be fair um, yep, 100%. Yeah, so they start eating people and working their way into Cathay, and this infuriates the dragons. They uh, see this as a betrayal, and Shen Yang, or more, actually, probably more accurately, Yuan Bo, but we know Shen Yang was involved, calls upon the Celestial Court. So, like we said earlier, Shen Yang has a big old boner for Azir. He thinks Azir is the only wind of magic that humans should be allowed to wield. Uh, Shen Yang feels very strongly about this. He thinks that humans cannot be trusted with any of the other seven winds of magic. Azir is the only one that it elevates their sense of being, and it's the only one that they can understand um, that uh, is pure enough that he feels comfortable with them learning it under his thumb, where the Celestial Court is uh, maintained under Yuanbo specifically, and that is one of his main jobs is to watch human wizards very carefully. Um, and if you demonstrate any magical ability in Grand Cathay, you will be an astromancer or else you are illegal. Um, flat out, which we'll get into. There's actually some fun stuff about that in a minute. But uh, Shen Yang calls upon the court of astromancers and says, ogres, deal with them. I want them gone. So being heaven's wizards, they do what every heaven wizard does when a situation gets sticky. They throw a meteor at it. <laughs> 
Um, and this is where something very fun happens that I've talked about with Andy Hall, uh, that there's no specifics about it. But one of the things I really like to think about is that when Shin Yang and all of his astromancers work together, they call upon the biggest meteor they can find. Shin Yang doesn't do it himself. He combines his power with his celestial court and Yuan Bo, who is the dragon of the meteor wind or the stone dragon. So he is naturally affiliated with Azir. And yep. all together, they reach out and grab the biggest son of a bitch they can find and turn it so that it's going to hit the ogres. So I've got a question. How that because this is a part that I know rep very well from the Ogre Kingdom side, but don't really know in terms of how it's been updated. Has this actually been updated, or is this all supposition? Because as I recall, it was originally, and again, this is running back to my old memories of it, but as I recall, it was just the Astromancers that pulled it all down. There was no connection at all to the Emperor. It was by the Emperor's command, but it wasn't the Emperor that did it. Is it so is this something that's been updated? Um, or is this something that um you have to update? date to make it make so, any real sense so, given that the astromancers are yet to even really become a thing properly yet yeah so i is yet to exist i will say i am 100 sure that the celestial court is involved so the astromancers mm. and you on bow is involved i am 50 percent sure <laughs> shin yang himself was involved yeah uh i would have to i'd have to triple check that he may have just ordered it but at the very least uh Yuan Bo and a shit ton of astromancers um mm. were involved but what i talked to Andy Hall about that i like a lot is that they 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 make a mistake which is that they call upon all this magic and they call out the biggest rock they can find but they don't realize what it's made out of and i think that zinch gets involved here because zinch or as the Cathayans know him Xi'an Chi is he is the primary antagonist god to Grand Cathay. He is a big old he uh there's some notes in the new Cathayan lore that Zinch finds the orderliness and the harmony of Cathay and its resistance to the corrupting influence of chaos because of how regimented it is to be a particularly fascinating challenge. Uh and he is he is very very obsessed with sticking his fingers in as much as he can. Um, mm. The other three gods have significantly less influence in Grand Cathay than Zinch does, um, where the the cults of Xi'an Shi are said to be rampant um, and very difficult to deal with. So I think that Zinch pulls a tricky on them and that because they use all this magic, they dip so deeply into the winds, kind of out of arrogance and also uh, not being as careful as they should have been that they pull down a warp stone meteor instead of pulling down a natural meteor. And this has devastating ramifications uh, because uh, what they pull down is warp stone, which is just raw dark magic. And they pull down a shitload of it. It is the biggest meteor that has ever impacted the Warhammer world that we know of um, because its effects are insane where it hits the ogre, the heartland of the ogre empire, and it wipes out two thirds of the ogre species in an instant. Um, asteroid. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Technical terms. Um, and this warpstone meteor, when it impacts the planet, something really weird happens, which is that when it kills two thirds of the ogres, some kind of feedback happens where the warpstone meteor seems to almost either absorb the ogre souls or it's it's it resonates with them 
but something happens where the ogres have an effect on the meteor and the meteor has an effect on the ogres. Yep. And what that causes is that the meteor becomes a living embodiment of the ogres worst desires, their worst impulses. And it becomes a giant mouth and it eats its way into the planet like a parasite and it eats all the way through Mm -hmm. till it pops out the other side where it is still a mouth and it's literally just a giant mouth there's Um, the the other side of the world is a huge whirlpool yes because it comes up in the ocean the the other side massive whirlpool the maelstrom the maelstrom that's the one yep or the galleon's graveyard as it's also known so and uh the ogres are almost entirely wiped out um what is what does survive of them are on the non-Cathayan side of this crater, and uh, the entirety of their homeland is incinerated by a warpstone fireball. So not only is it incinerated, but it is irradiated yeah. with magic. Um, where even today, thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, you cannot go there without very, very special precautions like modern Cathayans use. Where modern Cathayans, when they pull, take caravans into the Warpstone Desert, they cover themselves in um, very special suits and they line up their caravans with these really big, like silver mirrors that reflect the uh, magic, the raw magic away from them. Because otherwise, it's literally like walking into like the worst of Chernobyl. Like you're just gonna die horribly. Um. So um, I'm going to add an extra little detail here um, because it's uh, largely the theme of what I've been doing. Uh, This particular piece of lore was added before Cathay, as we understand it now, was added. Um, And Cathay has obviously changed, become something new. And in turn, that piece of lore has been gently speckled with different ideas. I think it's extremely likely that this event in particular will be rewritten. Of all of them, this is one Mm. of the ones that's most likely to be. The event will still be the same. It will be the pulling down of something, and that something might be given a new angle. It will hit. It will cause the Warpstone Deserts. It will cause the irradiation. It will create these super cool caravans that make their way through it, because that's awesome. And it will create the modern version of the politics that lie between the Ogre Kingdoms and Grand Cathay. All those key parts will exist, but the specifics are exceedingly likely to be rewritten. So be aware that uh, if you're watching this video, for example, a year down the line from now, uh, it's very likely that when the army lists come out for the old world, that all of this um, will be changed, that Grand Cathay will probably be pitched back far further than it currently is in the Total War game to ensure that they can accommodate all of the Ogre Kingdom events and also accommodate all the ideas for Grand Cathay being arguably the oldest human civilization that exists on the planet. Because as it currently stands, it's not. What it is, with its formation uh, minus 1,800 years ago, it's far from being the oldest. And that is, that's clearly nonsense because it is. Yeah, well, it's like even with the lore we have now, it doesn't make any sense of that there was a court of astromancers that yeah. were that were centralized enough that they pulled off this insane feat, and yet the founding of the nation does not happen for like another nine hundred or like another <laughs> eleven hundred years. Yeah, that clearly doesn't make any sense. So that's all going to get massaged like a big bit of dough to try and bake a slightly different version of the bread and ensure that it all makes sense. Um, because whenever someone writes a new army list, that timeline is one of the fun bits when you try to make sense of it all. 
Yeah. Um, is the hole still visible? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Great Maw. It's a giant Wait. mouth in the ground. If you go play Total War Warhammer 3 and you walk over to it, you can see it. It's gross. Oh. It has a bunch of hilarious effects and like sound effects and stuff. It's great. Yeah. Um, but uh, so in any event, um, <laughs> that happens. And this basically Poor turns uh, Western Cathay into a big desert. Um, a lot of it is a really hellscape desert. But on the plus side, it kind of makes uh, Cathay's Western border damn near unapproachable for a very long time. Um, which was probably not the goal. Uh, the goal was just to get rid of the ogres. The Great Maw was definitely not the intent. Um, mm. But we will come back to the Great Maw in a little bit because it does actually have a role to play in the more modern stuff. So after this, uh, about 900 years pass, and the founding of Grand Cathay likely took place before the Maw incident, but in minus 1800, a very big event happens, which is the completion of the Great Bastion. Uh, so the Great Bastion, giant wall, it's fucking huge. If you've seen it mm -hmm. in Total War and stuff, it is absolutely uh, colossal. A of a mile high. It's proper huge. Yeah, it stretches all the way from Weijin, the Celestial City, all mm -hmm. the way over to the ancient giant lands uh, to make the border completely impassable because the dragons get very, very sick of all of these chaos tribes constantly invading through their borders and they're finally like enough is enough <laughs> we're creating a wall um and the wall has a couple of notable things about it which is first this wall is it is not just a mundane wall that is a quarter of a mile high it is exceedingly magical uh on two different levels the first is that uh yeah that is very likely yeah i think that's very likely when when the uh, when much like Sigma are bound together all the tribes of man, when Grand Cathay comes together, it's when all the tribes of Cathay are pulled together and it becomes Grand Cathay. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, no, no. The 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 Great Maw is very fleshy, and it literally goes all the way through the planet. And its original description, it's not. And its original description, it's a crater. It's not a crater. It's a it's a pit. They just drops down into darkness. There's mm. no real flesh in it at all. Um, Total War reimagined it in a slightly different way. Um, there's lots of stories of uh, creatures moving down and attempting to make their way down. But the further down you went, amongst the sort of ragged, empty stones. In the, the yeah, in the eighth edition, in the, the eighth edition Ogre Kingdom's book, it's said to be fleshy, and it has well, like not fleshy in that. It, one. it has cool. like teeth and spikes sticking out of it. And it rumbles the earth so people will fall in so it can eat them. Um, Which is, of course, awesome. Yes. Uh, so, like, ogres ogres make pilgrimages to the Great Maw. And it always talks about that it's actually very dangerous because when they get to the edge so they can look down into it, the Maw will try to suck them in so it can eat them. Because, uh, you know, lovely God. Um, and, uh, yes, yes, its other end is the Galleon's Great Yard. I would not think it's a butt. I think it's literally just mouth all the way through. Um, it remember it's not an actual living creature it's a horrible mutated amalgamate god <laughs> it's a mad god it's not a it's not a creature it's something calling it a creature is a is a oversimplification i feel <laughs> but in any event so the great bastion gets made and the great bastion has two noble things about it the first is that it is forged through incredibly magical means by the three male dragon children so Zhao Ming, the Iron Dragon, Yuan Bo, the, the, the Heaven's Dragon or the meteor Dragon of the Meteor Wind, and Li Dao, the Fire Dragon, all join up under their father's um, guidance to make the wall, where it is said that, um, I think it's that uh, Yuan Bo for, creates the bricks 
and then Lee Dao uh, burns them with his fire, and then uh, Zhao Ming blesses them with his amazing smith abilities and the the iron wind to, to bless them and make them like impenetrable and they do that to every single brick this probably took them thousands of years <laughs> or at least hundreds it probably took a really freaking long time uh even with all of their magic and so they build up this wall and when it's complete a very important thing happens because it has all these magical defenses but what Shin Yang does at this point is a very interesting part of his character where Shin Yang has devised this insanely powerful de uh, device known as the Wuxing Compass, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more in a second. But what Shin Yang does is he pours his very essence into the Great Bastion. So the Great Bastion is functionally a part of Shin Yang. And, and it's to a very extreme extent where if the great bastion were ever to be destroyed, it would very likely kill Shen Yang because so much of his essence is poured into it to make it an impenetrable barrier. And if you want to see something similar, consider what happened with Shiyama earlier. Um, yeah. Um, with Shiyama in the spirit river. So definitely there's definitely connections between the two of them there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like father, like daughter. Um, <laughs> So, and the Great Bastion, it is it is probably the most insane, like, construction in the Warhammer world, or very, very close to it. Um, I can't think of anything bigger off the top of my head. It's proper yeah. mental. <laughs> it's like, not only is it massive, but it can literally repel the very winds themselves. Like, the winds of magic cannot penetrate the Great Bastion. So, like, that's why demon armies are actually quite rare in Grand Cathay, because they have a very hard time the winds that blow out of the north don't make it into Grand Cathay very easily. It's very, very difficult. It has to only come over from the mountains or up from the south uh, or out of the east over the ocean, which are just not, this just not generally how the winds of magic work. Uh, so, uh, and what the dragon emperor does at this point is at some point, we don't know exactly when, he constructs his magnum opus, which is the Wuxing Compass, also known as the Jade Compass. Yep, yep, yep. So the Jade Compass or the Wuxing Compass is a literally it looks like a giant compass up in the Celestial City. So it's up uh, in the Flying City. You can actually see it in Yuan Bo's uh, intro cinematic. Um, but it's this giant edifice that's very, very complex. It's like got all these meticulous gears and every little piece of it is inscribed with magic. And what it does is Jade apparently absorbs the winds of magic like crazy. It draws magic to it and just eats it up. Um, it, it's a very, very strong um, gatherer of the winds of magic. And what he built was this massive compass that draws all the winds of magic to it up in the celestial city. All the magic that would try and go through the Great Bastion or try and go over the, the Dragon River is instead brought up into uh, the Jade Compass. And uh, the Dragon Emperor is able to direct it where he wants. So he's able to pull on levers, or levers if you prefer, that change <laughs> where the compass is pointing. And where the compass points, it directs the flow of magic to that place. Which, as a feat of magical engineering, is fucking nuts. Like, that is a bonkers level of control over the winds of magic. Um, you tend to find that with a lot of Grand Cathay's lore that it is it's proper big mm. yeah as far as human nations go I think they've yeah, got it, magical dominance in the in the, in the bag <laughs> yeah. but um, so what Xinyang does is that 
Uh, although in Total War, you can point the compass a lot of different places. Generally speaking, in the lore, he seems to only really point it in one of two places, which is that he flows the Yang aspects of the Winds of Magic. So the Winds of Fire, Azir, uh, Life, and Light. He flows those into the Great Bastion to empower it. And then the lore of Yen, which is Death, uh, Shadow, Beast, and Metal, he funnels into the 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 spirit the dragon river and that's what allows them to maintain their magical strength because magic does fade over time um which is something the dwarves have learned to their cost um of that uh if you're going to rely on magical defenses you need to be able to re-empower them either reconsecrate them or find ways to keep the magic going into them so that they stay operational so that's what Shen Yang spends a lot of his time doing is redirecting the winds into these two grand designs of his, which protect the northern border from the predations of chaos. Which is interesting. Pretty neat. It's pretty neat. Love it. Yeah. And that pretty much covers a lot with the parents. Um, the only other thing that's worth talking about is that about 2000 years after actually 3000 years after this. So after the formation of Sigmar, um, the, you know, dragon parents, they're doing their stuff, uh, but apparently they've been working on something. We don't know what, ah, but yes. Xin Yang and Kui Yin have been scheming, and they've been making some kind of plan of their own, kind of in an do. ironic twist, uh, much like the old ones who they disparage quite heavily. Um, and it's worth noting, Andy's kind of talked about this a little bit, but I think it's worth diving into now. The dragons do not like the gods. They do not like the old ones. They hate them um the dragons are so anti-god that shin yang has very uh he has made it a very specific doctrine in Cathay that worship is considered like worship of gods is illegal yep you cannot worship spirits you cannot worship gods they tolerate kind of the worship of dragons but it's not I'm worship like worship. the old I'm worlders um somewhat of a yes they, yes they do allow ancestors yeah ancestor yeah. worship and the worship of the dragons is permitted but it's mm -hmm. very it's more like reverence than worship um like it's you know it's not like there's no priests there's no like leading of ceremonies there's no yeah. organized religion it's a very personal experience or a very familial experience the the, the entirety of um, grand cafe is a far more uh atheistic um, society that is based upon uh, people working together towards the betterment of all and harmony. Um, it's uh, a far grander design in that regard, but it's not about uh, uh, gods and gods either being something to worship or something to fear. Um, gods are very much other people's problems and other people's issues, not a Grand Cathay one. Having said that, though, we all know that's a bit of a lie, given that there's yeah. chaos cults that pass all the way through. Gods do exist and they're out there. I imagine that if they ever reach the point where a role-playing game comes in here, it's going to be massively muddied. Um, because uh, no matter what the grand design is, the reality on the ground is almost always something different. Oh yeah, and I'm I'm sure there are like small cults that do worship gods, yeah. but they have to be very quiet about it because it's yeah, probably, yeah. it's not tall. It's not because it's illegal. Exactly. Yeah. Um. That the heart of all these games, uh, ultimately, is conflict, <laughs> and conflict can't occur. There would be no need for them to outlaw worship of gods if it didn't happen. It just yeah. it wouldn't be something they needed to do. So, and uh, I will say oh, for this, cool. um, 
the the word prayer can can have kind of different connotations. I do not think they mean it in the sense where they're literally going like this, but more of a a benediction to their ancestors. Because you have to remember, the dragons are the ancestors of the Shukin guns. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll go a little bit further on this one. Um, we as a people, particularly those of us over in the West, have got a view that the gods are something to be worshipped. But that's not the case in the Warhammer world. Most of the gods, except for the Chaos Gods, who really adore that shit, but most of the gods are not there gagging for worship. Instead, they are almost... They're, they're otherworldly entities that you fear. So it's not so much you're worshipping them, you're you're asking them not to curse you, not to do something bad against you. You've, there's a famine out, so you ask the god of fertility, whichever one it is according to your local uh, culture, to to please stop whatever it is that they're doing and do something else. It's not so much that you're sending a prayer out to a god to worship it. It's nothing more than a communication. And when you make a prayer to the dragons, to the your ancestors, you're merely asking them for help. It's not worship at all. They are indeed their leaders. It's nothing more than I hope the dragons are there today watching over me while I go and do things that help society and keep everyone bound together. Uh, worship and prayer are two quite different things in the Warhammer world and indeed in the real world. Yeah. So uh, at this point, I think it's good to pivot into a couple of topics about the dragons themselves because that is the focus of this. And... Um, I'd just like to bring up this one. I'm hearing a faint echo as well at my side, and I've literally no idea where it's coming from. So, yeah, so um, I heard this last I, week too. Just well, and I will say, I, I don't hear an echo on this. Uh, it, I'm curious if anyone on YouTube hears a slight echo or if that's only at Twitch. That might be a Twitch problem, not a, not well, a stream I, problem. I'm hearing it, which is, yes, I might be just catching something from maybe your headphones and your mic. Maybe it's just catching um, the edge of uh, the sound coming through. Maybe In if fact, I... Like, Let's you find know. out. Can I hear well, okay, it now? Okay, so you, YouTube doesn't oh. hear anything. Nope, the echoes just disappeared when you moved oh, away. Oh, okay, so you know what? I'll just lean a little your further back. Your mic is that <laughs> sensitive that it was catching my voice in your uh, headphones. Okay, so I'll just I'll just lean That's further awesome. back. <laughs> 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 I'll, just, I'll just hang out back here. Um, so, um, a couple of interesting things about the Dragon Kids that now we're going to get into the really spicy fun stuff. So, the first is that we've kind of mentioned them a couple times, but we do need to talk about them actually okay so finishing up the god discussion one of the other things is that uh for the dragons they do not even see hating the gods as like it's not like a hatred of these equals it is more they see them as parasites they they're see no, they're no different to demons yeah and yeah and that's the big thing the god yeah. the the dragon the the Cathayan dragons look over and they go those aren't gods like they call themselves gods but we remember a time before they existed and if they weren't around, then they're literally just big demons. Like in some respects, they are they are nothing more than what has been destroying their world. And whilst they may be pitched against each other to a degree, in that there's good gods and bad gods, or if you want, it's all chaos anyway. It doesn't really matter. They are a disruptive force that make demands <laughs> upon people and do terrible things. Something that lies beyond the harmony that the dragons themselves are looking to install. Yeah, and uh, it, it, one of the interesting things with the dragons uh, relating to the gods is that uh, they they go very out of their way to really disdain the gods and view them as very lesser creatures. And a lot of that is because the dragons understand that the gods need worship. They need 
these mortals to actively worship them and pray to them and have this relationship with them. And the dragons go, well, we don't need that. That's a crutch that shows that they're weaker than us. I would say that that is, um, to give a slightly counteractive view, only one way of viewing the gods, and that the gods themselves have been depicted in the Warhammer world in multiple different ways. And whilst that is a, that is a commonly understood belief, particularly because that was how the old Realms of Chaos books depicted it, all the way back for, say, for example, 3rd edition Warhammer, 1st edition Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Um, later books have often given quite a different view for how the gods work and different perspectives. Indeed, some gods which had died out and have no worshippers at all have not only existed and continued to exist, have actually come back without a single worshipper at all, just as powerful as they were before. So it's it's a bit more complicated than that alone, while simultaneously mm. I think it's worth saying that is kind of true. Um, and one way of giving you a counter-argument to my counter-argument would be to say that in the realm of the gods and the aether and that place that lies beyond, there isn't really time as we understand it. Yeah, it gets it gets really mindfucky over there. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, and that allows something that has potentially got no current worship to exist. For example, it's quite possible that one of the gods of the Warhammer world, as we understand it just now, hasn't actually even been born yet, but has had worshippers since the beginning of time building up towards it. It's a complicated set of affairs. Yeah, go watch the uh, Lawhammer series if you want to know more about that. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> awesome! <laughs> um, so, um delving into that uh, and there is one of the fun things is there is kind of a sense of hypocrisy with the dragons and that while the dragons may not acknowledge it there is a lot of evidence to suggest that they despite the fact that they try to outlaw it are being worshipped by humans the, uh, it's uh, almost start I mean, humans and do it, they are they? they are benefiting from power that comes with that because worship is a it is a powerful force in warhammer whether people realize it or not. Yeah, and I think that that's worth um, mentioning directly here because, yes, I, I agree completely. The reverence, though, again, isn't worship. It's not that they're worshiping them as gods. They are fucking godlike entities that not only control every aspect of their lives, which they do, um, they are enormously powerful. They're not sitting like a prime minister or a king or a a leader of any other type they are quite literally godlike entities that can leap off buildings fall down turn into giant dragons eat entire armies fly back again and go well that was a handy <laughs> afternoon excellent um th they yeah. are th that's not just going to bring reverence that's going to bring terror that's going to bring love that's going to bring worship and adoration but not as a god it's going to be nothing more than pure uh the pure awesomeness of what they are being reflected and how people react to them. So I, I agree that you're absolutely spot on here, but I still don't think it is necessarily tied directly through to worship. Yeah. So uh, moving away from the God discussion, the other thing that's really important about the dragons is we've mentioned them a few times being the Shukan guns. So Shukan guns. We, go them, will we get the other dragons out because we haven't gone through all of them. Yet. Oh yeah, yeah. Thank well, you. It could be worth um, to get the other ones in just to make yeah. sure we got them because then we can go into our dragon blundered folks because that is just yeah. super fascinating. Yeah. So uh, the the dragon children, uh, just kind of doing a brief touch on them, and then there's a couple of them we'll hit more specifically on. So we already talked a, a bit, a fair bit about Shiama, the spirit dragon. Then there is Yuan Bo. 
So Yuan Bo, who of course is getting a lot of focus at the moment, is the Dragon of the Meteor Winds, also known as the Stone Dragon. Uh, so he is the one associated with Azir, and he is the Grand Administrator of Grand Cathay is his public title. Um, and what's very interesting about Yuan Bo is he is very duplicitous of the of among all of them. He has a double life where even his siblings, despite the fact they've known him for thousands of years, do not fully comprehend what it is exactly he's up to a lot of the time uh, because he sits as the public head of Grand Cathay. Uh, he hears, he talks to his father and his mother a lot. He hangs because he is in charge of both the celestial city. So the capital of Grand Cathay and the central provinces. So he controls two of the great provinces that make up Grand Cathay instead of just one, like his siblings. And think, think of him like the big grand vizier that holds everything together, yeah. um, where the rest of his siblings are all on the extreme. Quite literally, they're out on the periphery doing peripheral things and they are in comparison far less balanced than he is he sits in the middle standing in the center of the scales and is considered to be loosely the safe hand yeah his father and mother trust him more than anybody else Absolutely, uh, because he is given all the secret missions uh <laughs> to the point where shin yang has actually gone so far as to tell yuan bo some of the plan they're working on, which they don't share with anybody. And Kui Yin allows him to utilize the Onyx Crowmen, which are her spies. They are her mm -hmm. eyes and ears. And he is he is the spy master of Grand Cathay. He is also the grand administrator. He sets out all the edicts. He mm -hmm. sets the laws. He interprets the words of his father and mother. And he sets he goes to the other his siblings and he says, This is what's legal, this is what's illegal. Now they might not listen to what he tells them, which is a cause of conflict between the siblings, um, which, you know, siblings, what are you going to do? But uh, in secret, he is also the emperor's executioner. Uh, his job is to go out and kill who needs to be killed. And Yuan Bo is not so subtly a force of repression as well as a force of law, uh, which is kind of what law exists to do a lot of the time. Uh, if there are rebellions, Yuan Bo will often show up and he will, nobody will know he's there. You know, everyone thinks he's still back in central Cathay or in Wei Jin or Sheng Wu doing his, uh, his paperwork, uh, cause he loves his paperwork, but in reality, he shows up on a battlefield and there's all these peasants rebelling and he just goes, okay, y'all are dead. <laughs> I don't care about y'all. You're nothing to me. Uh, you know, he balances the scales. And he, he will maintain harmony, whatever it takes. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, the judge. Yeah, and yes, he is the Jade Dragon, uh, which, mm -hmm. fun fact about the Dragon Kids, their colors are a little weird, um, and it's because... Let's just stop thinking about that too much. Yeah, I will say, the reason for it is because they... Games Workshop made a weird decision where they wanted to base the Dragon Children off a of real-world mythology concept, which are the, the great beasts of Chinese mythology, which there's a north, east, south, uh, west, and central beast. And the north beast is black in color, so Miao Ying is a black dragon, even though she's the dragon of life. But they're like, oh, it's the storm dragon, so she's black like the color of storm clouds. All right, fine. Then you have... 
Yeah, then you have the East Dragon, Yin Yin, uh, who we'll talk a little bit more in a moment, is Azur, even though she's the Beast Dragon, but she's associated with the ocean. So, all right, we'll let that slide. Let that go. Yeah, then there's the uh, the Western Dragon, Zhao Ming, who is based on the White Beast, so he is white in color, but iron... Alchemy. Silvery, I guess. And then South <laughs> is the only one that really makes sense, which is Lee Dao, the Fire Dragon, who's red. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. But... In the uh, in the uh, mythology, the central beast is gold or yellow, but Gaines Workshop decided to make Shen Yang the gold dragon. So Yuan Bo didn't have a color at that point, so they decided to make him Jade because Jade is the most rever. It, it's practically holy as a material. Yeah. Um, it is quite literally stated to be Shen Yang's favorite material on the planet, and it has a lot of very strong magical properties. And the other thing about Yuan Bo is that when it comes to sort, he is the most powerful sorcerer of the five dragon children. He's not necessarily the best fighter per se, but he is the most powerful wizard among the children. It's very explicitly stated that. Yep. Which him being Jade likely has a lot to do with that, even though Jade is a very strange color for lore of heavens, but you know what? Whatever. We're moving on. <laughs> it's a gemstone, I guess. <laughs> Let's so, go on to Yin Yin, because I like Yin Yin. Yes, so we have Yin Yin, who has a lot of really, really cool lore. Uh, because Yin Yin has actually, much to her sadness, I suspect, inherited a lot of the old Cathayan lore. Yeah. Um, where Yuan Bo kind of took over a lot of the, like, old who, oh, this is the Celestial Dragon Emperor. No, it's actually just Yuan Bo. Um, uh, Yin Yin is the Grand Admiral of the Dragon Fleet. She is the mm -hmm. Sea Dragon. And she is associated with the wind of beasts. And uh, uh, despite the fact that she, she also represents the elemental wind of uh, wood, which granted that seems to mean in the concept of the beasts of the wood, there are creatures in the wood. She represents all the beasts. Uh, granted, there's lots of terrifying beasts to be found in the ocean as well. So I don't think she minds too much. But Yin Yin, from what we know about her, she seems to be the most ambitious and also borderline stupid, but like in a in a like a loving it's way. An unfortunate assault. Yeah, of 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 the dragon children. She is uh what what's the word I'm looking for? Uh there, there's a word that always comes to mind. I'm I'm forgetting it, where she's like she's very aggressive. Um, because she impetuous wants impetuous is what yes, she's very impetuous. Yes, yes, that's it. She's all she's also very outward looking in comparison to the other dragons as well. Um, in that uh, if you take a look through her provinces, it's where you'll see the most foreigners, the most outsiders who've been allowed in, and that includes a whole host of foreigners that we've yet to have really detailed, um, that have uh strong relations because of presumably trade routes um that make their way in through her cities. So yeah. Yeah, so uh, Grand Cathay, a lot of it borders the ocean, and she is Absolutely. in charge of all of that, which is known as the Eastern Hers. Province. And uh, like Andy said, they have a massive amount of foreign districts. Uh, the capital of Yin Yin's province is Fushao, which is a huge city. It is said to be the most populated city in all of Grand Cathay mm -hmm. because it has so many foreigners in it. There's like an entire dwarf quarter, an empire quarter, uh, and a court for the elves of Ulthawan, a quarter of Bretonians, a quarter of Talans and Estalians. Like it is packed with people. 
as it currently stands, it's quite likely it's the largest city in the known world. Um, the the most obvious counterpoint would be something like Marienburg sitting over in the old world, and another extraordinarily uh, cosmopolitan city with people from across the world, including people from Cathay, people from Nippon. Um, and I think that it's quite possible that this city is even larger. If you're looking for scales, you're possibly looking at well beyond a million and possibly even oh, yeah. more than that. Um, they're not huge by modern examples of cities, but they're nevertheless huge. Yeah, and uh, and that's not the only one. There are, I want to say, like four or five yeah. very large port cities. Off the top of my head, I'd need to look at the uh, map, but yes. Um, and uh, she's in charge of all of them. Uh, her her cities are said to be very cosmopolitan, um, mm -hmm. and because they just have all these different things and their trade centers, and a lot of the cultures are interweaving. And Yin Yin very much embraces that because it's money. Uh, she is also the wealthiest um, of the five that are still around. The five dragon chins. Um, it's it's interesting when you look at them all because she's almost certainly um, the most. Now, I'm going to use this word with a certain amount of tongue-in-cheek awareness that it's a very difficult word to use here, but mm. powerful. In mm. that, she has access to a large military, an enormous navy, which has perhaps not always gone the way it should do. She's got access to extraordinary funds. She's got access to probably the largest taxation out of everybody, the largest populations. And while she might not be responsible for creating the law, she might not be gaining all the glory that you might get for sitting up in the north. She might not be doing all the study that you might get from others. What she is without any comparison really is is bright, alive, and very much in the thick of it in comparison to some of the other ones. Yeah, I expect she kind of leads from the front, though I actually have a very strong theory that she's probably a bow wielder um, most of the time. Because, yeah, Yin Yin, so the, the thing with uh, each of the Dragon Kids is they all have a very distinct relationship with their parents, um, mm -hmm. where we've talked a little bit about Yuan Bo, he's very balanced. Yin... Yes. Yin Yin, hilariously enough, is actually the dragon child who is probably the most Yin of the five, uh, next to maybe Yuan Bo. But she has a very unique relationship with Yin, where she's not as much like the Olgu and Shaiish. She's far more the beasts and like metal. She's far more of the the more uh, <laughs> um, impulsive aspects that might come with Yin. The more emotive. I think she's very emotive. It's interesting because that normally be the uh, judging by the classical winds rather than the eastern winds, depending upon how you wish to define these. Um, uh, that would normally be directly associated with the bright wind, that impulsivity. Oh, we'll, that we'll get to him. Burn and thrush. We'll get to um, him. <laughs> and it's, quite, it's quite fun to see them uh, bringing in extra aspects, not just of the winds, but to their characters and not relying on the winds alone to define them. Yeah, I would say Yin Yin seem, has a really fun relationship as the dragon of beasts because she very much gives off this feeling of that she, like when she gets on the hunt she is relentless um which is good when you're out there fighting against dark elf black arcs and uh nipponese fleets and the fleets of end uh the war dows of uh the kingdoms of end she deals with a lot of threats from the ocean she also has to negotiate and is probably a very aggressive negotiator yeah. Um, and like Andy said, she wields a ton of authority. Like one of the things that's very interesting is even with all of you on Bo's might, the sea dragon edict is a very powerful thing because she gives you the right to come into a port. You on Bo cannot grant you the right to come into the ports of Grand Cathay. That's up to Yin Yin. 
which okay. means which is that's a that's a significant amount of power. Also, for all of her impulsivity, you get a sense that um, she's she's not as, for example, um, stuck in with humanity as another dragon we're about to move on to most definitely yes. is. So you get that um, a sense that she's probably going to be, given where she is, um, a slightly more distant figure, contrary to what you might mm. expect. One that is perhaps more ambassadorial, who has more actual thoughts going on, but also behind that all, given some of the choices she's made, she might be a bit angry. <laughs> she might have a bit of a temper when things don't go her way. So there's definitely lots of aspects to her character that are potentially there that have yet to be explored in any of the particular outlets that we have so far. So uh, real quick, Bondo, love your mini. Uh, hate your arrival in the end times, but I appreciate you for the uh, the all cap <laughs> super chat. But uh, I so the reason for that is very heavily stated to be that Zinch tends to take Cathay as a very personal challenge and seems to in delight in investing heavily in disrupting that harmony. Um, whereas that harmony actually, like the other gods are definitely there. They're definitely, they have cults undeniably within Grand Cathay, but they have a harder time taking purchase because of the way that Cathayan society is structured. They're definitely there. And one thing we'll talk about is that they're probably more present in certain el places in Grand Cathay than others. Um, but from what lore we have now, it seems to mostly be that Zinch is kind of the ever present threat. Whereas the, like, I bet the ports, the cosmopolitan ports probably have a lot of Slaneshi influence. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, what you'll find is that what we're currently dealing with is a society seen through the lens of a single game. Mm. Um, that single game has got aspects of it that are important for that game and also aspects of it that, that the writers behind it will also be interested in reinforcing as it, that is moved over towards other games for example the old world when it comes the prevalence of chaos and exactly how chaos is presented in that game they will go through every society at various points and they will ensure that all the gods are mentioned in there because they do pretty much every single time and if old world kicks off we're going to find we're going to get a bunch of novels that are going to completely contradict everything that we think we know uh, as it comes up so i would say that yes definitely on the top tier when you're looking uh oh uh oh we've just lost andy for a second Hopefully that will sort itself out in a sec. Chat, can y'all still see me? Say something. Hold on. Let me let me message him. Uh, okay. So uh, <laughs> we'll give Andy a second, and I will keep talking. Uh, but yes, no, the other cults are definitely active. Um, they are definitely. Um, they definitely appear to the extent that uh, like uh, Kugath Plaguefather is actually a known threat within Grand Cathay. He's known as uh, he's known as Zenfa to the Cathayans. Uh, that's Kugath's name over there. And he has been kind of a present threat. Um, yeah. God's didn't like God's didn't like Andy talking about him. Uh, let's see another super chat here. Hieronymus talking about the dragons, dragon blood humans. Um, Abarash drank every lost drop of blood of a dragon in theory is he now something akin to a shukin gun uh i will also get andy's take on this but i suspect that there is a notable difference i would say that there's a very notable difference between consuming the blood of a dragon um taking the blood of a dragon into you which seems to balance out uh the the elixir 
um, that is present within the um, that is like the flaw within the vampiric curse versus being born part dragon. Um, I would not call Aberash a shukin gun. Like I don't not he does not likely have dragon blood coursing through his veins. He could assume dragon blood, which seemed to due to its magical nature have a very strong uh, interaction and influence um, with the magic that m- moves his body around and allows his body to you know be active and have the powers that it does. But I would not say uh that he uh is a shukin gun and i'm just gonna uh did we lose you but um dang hopefully andy comes back soon because we're just getting into the super fun bits how are y'all hello quick break (laughs) how's everybody doing um i'm sure he'll be back in a moment but uh I will now take questions. How about that? <laughs> if y'all have any questions, um, the whooshing compass is pointed away from Andy's house. Yeah, someone needs to change the compass back. <laughs> please, please send the winds of magic to Andy. He needs them. But uh, we'll get him back in a second. I knew it was going to happen one day. It had to happen eventually. Yeah, intermission. Get up and stretch. Stretch your legs. Get some, uh, get some water, you know, drink some stuff. You have a replacement Andy for me. <laughs> Hold on. I don't, let me see if I can put this up on screen. Uh, cause it's funny to me. <laughs> yes, I can. Hold on. We can, we can have this going while we're waiting for Andy to return. Where is it? Oh God. Which one is it? Which one is it? There it is. There you go. You can have, you can have Andy doing the dragon dance. (laughs) We're waiting for a moment. (laughs) Oh Jesus. Um, so while, while, while Andy's doing the dragon dance for us, uh, let's see. Okay. Some questions came in. Uh, let's see. Do I think the dragon kids got their revenge on Kraken rock off screen during the end times? Could be, could be. I mean, Kraken rock was rampaging around somewhere. Could be that maybe Kraken rock had an epic final battle with Shen Yang and the two killed each other. Who could say, uh, do we know what powers the human dragon children have outside of a strong connection to magic? Um, yes, they are longer lived than humans. Um, they are in many ways physically stronger than humans. Um, they're, they're just better. Uh, having dragon blood in their veins just makes them better in a variety of ways. Uh, cause dragon blood has a lot of, uh, very strong influences. Um, like, you know, to the point where dragon blood is so mighty that it can cure the curse of vampirism, uh, in the sense that it gets rid of the thirst for blood and makes you even more powerful. But, um, yeah, I that that definitely seems to kind of be the the interesting thing there. Uh, why does the Galleon's graveyard spew so much dark magic, and why doesn't it drink the ocean? It does. The Galleon's graveyard does drink the ocean, um, but it also vomits it back up because uh, it, it's literally uh, um, uh, Charybdis from the like the the myth of Odysseus, right? Where it's this massive 
uh, whirlpool that pulls in. The Galleon's Graveyard is not l easy to find. Uh, you can actually only find it during specific times um, of like magical confluence. And it draws in all of the dead. Like everything that dies in the ocean is slowly but surely drawn into the Great Maw. Um, and uh, um, the Great Maw absorbs all of this dead stuff every wrecked ship every creature that dies at sea every person that dies at sea and it eventually devours them but then it's constantly barfing them back up um so it is a realm of death but death uh especially stagnant death like that um draws immense amount of dark magic to it um it's actually one of like the largest uh locus loci locuses uh, of dark magic to be found anywhere in the world is the celestial dragon emperor a cat person uh well there is a uh event slash legend about uh cats involving the celestial dragon emperor and the moon empress so yes i would say they are cat people uh because there's a there's a whole cat thing uh yep we did talk about the uh the moon empress is an alien very true she's a shapeshifter she's not a dragon she's a shapeshifter that takes the form of a dragon uh, would Kugath be active and end? Kugath has been active pro probably everywhere. It's Kugath. He he gets around. He really likes being in the mortal planes. Uh, um, Kugath likes being in the mortal realms, our real or reality, more than he likes being in the realm of chaos, which is a little unusual. Um, it's not like crazy necessarily for demons to prefer that. Uh, a lot of demons do enjoy many of the sensations and such of the mortal realms. But most demons kind of feel like they're they spend most of their time in the realm of chaos. Kugoth actually spends the most of his time in the mortal realms because he's constantly looking for new ingredients and testing out his new plagues and diseases on people to uh, to see stuff. Um, let's see. I've got 20 different Andes on speed dial. I wish I wish. Listen, I only know four warhammer andes <laughs> uh just on the news the great maw is eating scotland well well we'll have to we'll have to give a we'll have to give a an f in chat for f in chat for andy f in chat for andy uh let's see here what other we're just we're just doing chats here uh, what is my take on the character Shiyama, the spear dragon? She's said to be the first of all the dragon children. Uh, I think Shiyama is fascinating. I, I wish there was a little more on her. Um, I love the idea that the spirit dragon or the death dragon is first and that she also died very, very quickly. It opens a lot of great questions. Uh, I will admit it does kind of put a hole in my theory that she was killed by the ogres, which I was really, really fond of that theory because I like the idea that the ogres managed to kill and potentially eat one of the dragon children. And that is what pushed Shin Yang over, uh, over the edge and led to him retaliating against the ogres by throwing a, uh, throwing a meteor at them, um, or the great maw at them. Um, that to me made a lot of sense. And it could be, that is still what happened. Just, we have to like fix some timeline issues for that to be the case. Um, but it also opens the interesting idea that maybe, you know, Shiyama died willingly, you know, maybe she sacrificed herself or Shin Yang sacrificed her. Um, uh, but like there was some decision made so that she could empower the dragon river. Um, who could say, uh, let's see. 
Uh, oh, okay. Andy just messaged me. He said uh, his internet has died. Trying to see if he can connect on mobile. Let me see. Let me send him in case you need. We're getting him back. <laughs> um, maybe the lizardman falling out or dragon ogres killed her. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, it 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 could be that. Uh, she was killed by yeah dragon ogres. A dragon ogre shaggeth killing her would make a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot of animosity between dragons and dragon ogres. They hate each other. Um, those races have been fighting each other for like countless eons. Um, so that would definitely make a lot of sense. But uh, and the lizardmen doing it would be fascinating. Um, that would be very very interesting if it was the lizardmen that struck her down. Uh, that would open like a whole bunch of cans of worms. There he is. I see him. Okay, he's working. He's coming. He's making his way in. She was killed by the fishman. Oh my god, it all makes sense now. It all makes sense now. You need, uh, hello? There, hello. There, there he is. <laughs> uh, so I'm currently on my iPad because uh, my internet has gone down. Roadworks outside have apparently destroyed my internet. So nice. I'm currently working on, I'm tethered over to a mobile over there, which may run out of battery, but as it stands, I'm here. <laughs> All right. Ah, funny angle. Look at me. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're, we're, we're going to hit, I'm going to hit the gas now on stuff. Because uh, we're, <laughs> so everyone in chat was like, the great Ma got Andy. <laughs> Scotland's it going totally down. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Oh my gosh. So Yin Yin, yes. Uh, Lore of Beast Dragon. Uh, she's blue in color. For those that were asking, she's the Azure Dragon. Um, but uh, the big thing, the reason we keep calling her impetuous and kind of joking about that is that Yin Yin did something a little silly, uh, which is that she launched an invasion because Yin Yin, unfortunately for her, got saddled with a good chunk of old lore about Cathay trying yeah. to invade the Southlands. And it didn't go well. Um, that was from Lizardman, as I recall, wasn't it? Yes, the fifth yeah. edition Lizardman fifth book. Fifth edition army list. Yeah, so uh, really big story, too. It's a lot of fun to read. But yeah. uh, basically what happened is apparently Yin Yin um, seemingly, like, maybe she overheard, like, she was either trying to expand Cathay's influence or maybe her father wanted her to do it or something. But Yin Yin launches an invasion of what she thinks is just the Southlands. But unfortunately for her, turns out there's another continent because they knew the planet was a globe. They just didn't realize that there was another continent on the other side of the globe. Uh, so she leads an invasion of the Southlands and her fleet that attacks the Southlands gets wiped out by a typhoon. Because um, yeah. the Slon had a, had a plaque that told them, launch a typhoon on this date at this spot. And they went, okay. And Yin Yin's fleet got obliterated. Uh, and then the other half of her fleet landed on the Western shore of Lustria. Cause they went all the way around and they thought they landed on the Southlands and were like, all we have to do is march to the center of this continent and we'll meet up with the other half. And, uh, they got decimated and a single survivor made it to the Eastern shore and, uh, to one of the ports and made his way home to Grand Cathay. And, uh, yeah, didn't go well. And she was deeply embarrassed uh, and her father was not happy. Shin Yang was not happy. It's a fun one, isn't it? Because um, it's uh, a nice way of using older lore to help characterize more current characters. Um, and I think that it speaks to 
how older lore can be used and incorporated to ensure that the newer material still shines. But it does um, make her an unfortunate character in terms of the massive mistakes that are made there. Because apparently it takes, what, a century for her to rebuild her fleet. A century mm -hmm. is an enormous amount of time. And it also suggests that the actual fleet that went off was equally enormous. So the shame that she must have felt, the embarrassment that she must have um, uh, been subjected to is not great for the poor character. Yeah, and since then, she's pretty much been forced to only deal with defending Grand Cathay. Yep. She has not been allowed to lead an invasion since. Uh, which is actually why, because I've seen a lot of people ask about this, this is actually why Yuan Bo is the character that is invading Lustria in the new campaign. And he is trying to co-opt the geomantic web. Because a lot of people are like, oh, shouldn't Yin-Yin do that? Because that's kind of her thing. Yin-Yin screwed up. Yin-Yin <laughs> Yin tried and she lost. So dad's yeah. not trusting her with that important of a job. And Absolutely. I have seen, I, I do love how many people love Yin Yin because of the fact that she is the underdog of the yeah. Dragon Kids, which Agreed. is great. Like that, that adds a lot of fun flavor to her as a character. Um, but yeah, so that's essentially Yin Yin. Uh, she likely, in her view, has a lot to prove herself for. Uh, I suspect she's probably much closer to her mother than her father, uh, which is why I suspect she wields a bow because the Kui Yin loves the bow like archery is one of quayan's three major tenets which are subterfuge archery and like uh stealth or diplomacy um so uh one of the dragon kids needs to use a bow and i think yin yin as someone that fights on ships that would be perfect um, makes sense yeah but uh, so have we done Zhao Ming when i was away no uh i know i just i was answering just like comments from chat so sorry for missing it all no, no, you're all good. You're all good. <laughs> Zhao Ming, uh, I love Zhao Ming. He is a fascinating dragon. So Zhao Ming is the iron dragon. He's the dragon of metal. Uh, he is a grant, he is a very skilled alchemist and smith. Um, though which you know, if you're lore of metal, you got it. Th those are your core tenets are alchemy mm -hmm. and smithing. So he is a grand forge master, he's able to create insane works of art and power, uh, and do all sorts of cool stuff. And uh, he is in charge of Shenyang, which is the, the ultimate city that's right on the border with the Warpstone Desert. And it's also where all the caravans show up. It is where everyone that comes all the way over from the west along the Ivory Road will end up and trade all of their goods. So it is a very, 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 very wealthy city. But it's kind of all that's out there in the western provinces because the Warpstone Desert makes up the rest of it. But Zhao Ming's totally cool with that because he likes Warpstone. He loves Warpstone because Warpstone, if you are an alchemist or a wizard or a smith, has insane properties. Um, like it, it transmute. Like if you're, especially if you're like into the whole alchemy business, especially like Warpstone is crazy important for it transmuting is. substances and uh, applying properties. And Zhao Ming has specialized himself into attempting to purify Warpstone and has been fairly successful. Um, like he's managed to turn Warpstone into a reasonably stable material uh, that could be used in weapons and armor without mutating or killing the bearers. Um, and we know that that can be done from other species that have done similar things. Yeah, the dwarves um, pulled it the, off a long time ago, but they lost it, uh, yeah, unfortunately. Um, and the Skaven do, obviously, all the time. Mm. Um, and they found a variety of methods of ensuring that Warpstone can be used, and I use this with a certain amount of hesitancy, safely um <laughs> it's 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 the 
Warhammer World's equivalent of uranium et al. It's a highly radioactive but magical substance. So there are methods of controlling it and using it. And it's nice to see that they have taken uh, an existing storyline that's popped up again and again throughout older, right up to present novels, where there are people who are experimenting with and trying to understand Warpstone. And when you put that through to its natural conclusion with an entity that can live for not just 100 to 200 years for the studying, but thousands, you're going to get someone who can not just effectively do it, but can also pass on that effectiveness to everyone around them. So mm. uh, it's, it's a good development, I think, and a natural development for what would happen if you had creatures like the dragons existing in the Warhammer world. Yeah, like and Zal yeah. yeah, and Zhao Ming, uh, Zhao Ming is a very interesting, uh, he is considered his mother's favorite. Uh, it's not necessarily considered public knowledge, but apparently he's a mama's boy. Um, that being said, he does have daddy problems. Um, Zhao Ming very much wants his father's affection. He wants his mm. father to be proud of him, but his father isn't. Because um, <laughs> Zhao Ming is very experimental, and he does a lot of things that, from the point of view of the other dragons, brings disharmony to Grand Cathay. Um, and that Zhao Ming actually is very much like his mother in that he cares about humans. Um, he hangs out with humans. He is known yeah. to speak with his subjects. He goes and shares drinks with them. He goes down to like celebrate victories with them, spend time with them, get to know them. So his people love him. But the other that's dragons... Also... Oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, no, I no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's also seen as potentially um, how Warpstone is beginning to corrupt him and turn turn him into something that's different um, from the other dragons, um, who all, even the ones who are seen to be the most affectionate, all have distance, um, yeah. where he doesn't. Yeah, and Zhao Ming, uh, like, he has this great relationship with his people, and it's very heavily implied because he works alongside them. Like, he's an alchemist and a smith. He runs what's known as the House of Secrets, and the House of Secrets are alchemists, and they are uh, people who demonstrate a gift for Shaman, the Wind of Metal, and mm -hmm. Zhao Ming invites them into Shangyang to work with him, to help him uh, create things and understand further the properties of Warpstone, but so not only is he doing things from a cultural perspective, very weird in that he's like hanging out mm -hmm. with the rabble, uh, with the peasantry, but he's also allowing essentially um, uh, fugitives, these criminal wizards uh, who are studying a lore of magic that is not sanctioned by Shen Yang. They are not sanctioned by Yuanbo. They are full on illegal and he is openly inviting them into his home. And there are notes that Yuan Bo and Zhao Ming do not get along. Uh, I mean, is it any great surprise, given that he is effectively standing as the rebel? He is the one who is not doing it the way that everybody else does it. He is the one that is doing his own thing and often ignoring edicts as they're getting passed down. He's like, yeah, sure, whatevs. You can worry about that nonsense. I've got stuff to do here. Um, and to make it more complicated for those who would like to see him change arguably back to what he's supposed to be um he is exceedingly popular because of the nature of himself and that mm. makes it very difficult without uh literally dad coming down from on high and saying oi for any real change to be enacted <laughs> yeah sadly and, yeah and when there's some interesting notes of yuan bo very much wants to rein in his brother 
He wants to probably lead an army over to Shangyang and smack him around, but his mother tells him no. No. You, you leave my boy alone. He's fine. <laughs> um, but there is a darker side uh, to Zhao Ming, which is that his proximity to Warpstone likely is affecting him. Now, he's a yeah. dragon, so he's very durable and he's very resistant, but he's been there for a long time, and he works with this material a lot. And the other thing he's very close to is the Great Maw. And one of the one of my most favorite things they introduced, and it's very exciting because of where it could go. I'm almost sad that, like, I really hope they explore it more in the old world, is that Zhao Ming has been started to be influenced by the Great Maw. He can hear it talking to him in his mind, which is crazy. That's we've proper wrong. We've <laughs> never heard of a non-ogre having a relationship with the Great Maw. Like, he literally has a god that is borderline, like, it's not a chaos god, but it's not an order god. It's like a, like a it's destruction just, god. It's, it's just it's there. It's a god. It's a god yeah. of hunger. I mean, there's no need to necessarily tie it through to chaos or not. Although there is this deep desire amongst many writers to try and uh, categorize everything to make it a thing. Oh no, it must be a chaos god. All gods are chaos. Ah, there is no need for that. The one world is far more nuanced than that alone. He, uh, the, the Maw is very much the Maw, and it's yeah. fascinating um, that it has taken an interest as well in an external entity. And when you start trying to pick apart reasons, you could say that perhaps his hunger, his need to know what it is that yeah, he's for pursuing, knowledge. His need for knowledge, his need to use Warpstone for something better. It's not just that it's um, drawing the Maw to him. It's also, to a degree, drawing him towards the Maw. Yeah, and there's another really interesting element there is it could kind of explain a lot of his behavior changes. Um, mm. Not like, I think he's always been very empathetic and fond of humans, but he's almost kind of ogre-like in some of his personality of that he's very boisterous and he has that sense of tribalism camaraderie. And there's actually a hilarious <laughs> note that Zhao Ming has a very good friend and his very good friend is Greece's gold tooth. Because um, obviously. <laughs> yeah. There is a hilarious transcript of a meeting between the two of them because they meet often because they both control the ivory road. That's how Greasis is as wealthy as he is. He controls yeah. the ivory road. And the two of them have had a fair number of meetings. And there's a note from Zhao Ming where he's apparently laughing at a comment that Grease's Goldtooth makes to him where he says, I can see that you and I are very similar because we both desired our father's affection and did not receive it. But unlike you, I have yet to eat my father. <laughs> and he, he makes a joke about how if he were if he were to try, it would probably not be possible for him because his dad is so big. <laughs> and Greasis is like, ah, oh, not with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, classic ogre perception. <laughs> you could easily do that. <laughs> Leave my boy out, <laughs> Greasis. <laughs> big bone. Um, uh, if you want to see um, uh, a similar character that is entirely noble in terms of how they're portrayed whose character has changed over time because of the influence of chaos um uh take a look over at ariel over the with the, with the wood elves where mm -hmm. she similarly um uh, has been using magics that are perhaps not the wisest in her case she's using dark magic as well as using high magic and that dark magic has over the course of time 
wrought a change within her and exactly the same here where Warpstone has likely wrought a change within him. And that's taken a character who was one way and changed it over the course of time into a character who's perhaps a bit different. And that development is, I think, an essential component of ensuring that our Warhammer world doesn't become stale because it often does and can. Hey, oh, that would be a ship and a half. Go, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Zhao Ming and his sugar daddy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like, and Zhao Ming is very, he's like very fond of ogres. There is a notable amount of ogres that live in Shenyang, obviously, because of its, uh, the whole Ivory Road thing. When they often act as bodyguards for caravans and they come to Shenyang, and Zhao Ming welcomes them with open arms and yeah, he, yeah. He, he adores the ogres. Um, which is very interesting, especially when you consider that Shang Yang hates them so much he tried to obliterate them. Mm -hmm. And now his son is fraternizing with them. And I think that, again, speaks to change and speaks to how things have definitely, definitely moved on for him. Um, but given where we are in the hour and the fact that it disappeared, we should probably move on to Lee Dao unless yes. he did it when I wasn't around. No, no. And Lee Dao's actually quite quick because there's not a ton on him. There's some interesting. So yeah, Lee Dao is the, uh, and uh, we're kind of sliding along an interesting scale of where, like, if Yin Yin is kind of the most Yin of the dragons, you have Zhao Ming, who is technically, uh, he wields the lore of Yang, but he's the metal dragon. He is from the Yin Wind, and he has a lot of those Yin components. Yuan Bo is the balanced dragon, and then we have Li Dao, who's all Yang. Um, Li Dao is a fiery, angry, boisterous, pissed-off dragon. Um, he is by far the angriest of the five. And Li Dao also debatably has the least enviable job, which is that he defends the southern border. Um, yeah. And the southern border of Cathay is a mess. Uh, there is a series of watchtowers, but it's very rural because every time they've tried to build up cities, they get attacked. So they often have to keep cities kind of smaller and more separated because they're constantly under threat. Um, and Li Dao is also in charge of the mountains of heaven, um, which we'll get into in a second. But like from the south, he's constantly dealing with the Naga of Koresh, who are not nice. Uh, they are a very, very spooky race. While we don't have a ton of details on them, the Naga of Koresh are often called the Blood Naga. And uh, they are said to hunt men like animals beneath the moonlight of the jungles. And they are very spooky and they use a lot of powerful magic and everybody's scared of them. Um so he has to deal with them. He also holds off the Kingdoms of End. Um, while the Kingdoms of End does have a little bit of an embassy, the village of the Tigermen, uh, within the borders of Grand Cathay, their relationship is not always good. And war often breaks out between those nations, especially because End is said to be a nation that reveres gods. It's the land of a thousand gods, and they probably have a lot more than a thousand. Like, god, gods are very important to End, whereas Cathay is borderline atheistic. There's a lot of potential conflict there. Yeah. Uh, because gods don't tend to look very nice on people who talk shit about them. Uh, and then in the midst of that is the Monkey King. And the Monkey King, just like the Monkey King from our world, uh, funny enough in Warhammer, they haven't named him yet, though if they don't call him Sun Wukong, I'll be amazed because in every other fantasy adaption, the Monkey King is literally like public use. Everybody uses the Monkey King, and he's always called Sun Wukong. But, <laughs> but uh, in any event, the Monkey King is immensely powerful. He is crazy levels of powerful and the mountains of heaven are his domain it said it's apparently the biggest mountain range in the world it just it, it's like even though all the mountain, mountain ranges are terrifyingly huge in warhammer mountains of heaven are said to be like the big ones yeah. uh and the monkey king is a bit of a neutral party sometimes he fights with cathay 
Sometimes he fights alongside Cathay. Sometimes he, like, whose side he's on is, it depends. He's, the Monkey King has worked with the Skaven. He's worked with the Kingdoms of End. Uh, but he seems more often than not to fight alongside Grand Cathay. Uh, but him and Lee Dao have a unfriendly relationship. Uh, they are apparently what you could probably call frenemies. Um, or, though it's pro probably more likely that the Monkey King likes pissing off Lee Dao. Because the Monkey King is very similar to our world's mytho mythological Monkey King in that he is a trickster and he's also notorious for just pissing people off for the fun of it. He's, he's a little prankster and he loves pissing the dragons off for the fun of it. There's a note by Yuan Bo uh, in the short story that the only the only entity that can actually get Yuan Bo so angry that he loses his shit is the Monkey King, which is hilarious um, because the Monkey King is apparently very inventive with his insults. But uh, Li Dao hates him a lot of the time, it's implied, but he has to deal with him. And Li Dao, uh, being the fire dragon, actually is very much in his blood, and he is angry all the time. And what? And he's fighting all the time. Uh, and he's very resentful of his siblings. Because Li Dao sees it that all of his siblings got very cushy jobs, or very respectful jobs, very honorable jobs, and he's stuck finding an endless war protecting the rest of his sibling stuff and they don't appreciate how hard his job is they don't appreciate as well because particularly as well because he doesn't catch any of the glory that you'd get from defending against the great hordes of chaos to the north which is um left to his sister so he's left dealing with all the uh, quite irritable scraps to the south that comes hand in hand with a lot of hard, busy work, but without any real great glory. So he's left, if anything, even more angry by the end of it, seeing that others are getting to do their thing, and he feels that his thing is forging forward and burning the fuckers. And what's he left with? The real war, the war he wants to do, up there. Yes, and it yeah. does seem like the blood god would appeal to him. Yeah, I, I would if, not if be shocked. The if there... a god and fuck the gods, see the dragons. Yeah, it would not surprise me at all if there are Cornet cults, uh, a lot of them in the South, because of just the endless fighting. Uh, that tends to be very up Corn's alley. Because, like, when you're surrounded by it, like, you know, turn to somebody that's going to help you, uh, even though it's going to be a bad thing at the end. Hammond, I promise we will get to Shenzhou in a minute. Uh, and no, they're not bear dragons, at least none that we're aware of. God, God I hope there's not bear dragons. <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway that's essentially Li Dao. Uh, that's pretty much all we know about him he's very resentful of his siblings he's very angry uh and he is fighting an endless war um mm -hmm. that's really all there is to say uh though uh his fire is said to be pretty intense uh there's actually a note in the kugoth story um about him with the dragons that kugoth plague father uh ended up fighting yuan bo zhao ming and Li Dao at the same time uh, along with another great unclean one and that Kugoth was actually trying to kill hilariously enough. And Lee Dow incinerated both of them when he finally got into position because he hits like a truck. Uh, so beyond that, uh, the last dragon child that we haven't covered yet is Miao Ying. Uh, uh, who we, we saw covered her to a degree. Covered, yeah, to, it's a small bit, but she defends the Great Bastion. Uh, she yeah, has yeah. Uh, She has the most honorable job. And she is considered the most favored by her father. Her father loves her. And he gives her a job he would, in many ways, not, like, debatably not even trust you on Bo with. Because it's a job that requires an iron fist of, like, 
you know, if you watch the Cathay reveal trailer, her whole thing about, you know, demand sacrifice, you know, we must do whatever it takes to defend the great bastion. It doesn't matter how many lives it costs, how much money it costs, all this stuff, all that matters is that the great bastion stands strong. Um, and it, it is an incredibly critical job to the survival of grand Cathay. Um, and the other thing about her is that she's actually a very interesting, the thing I really like about Miao Ying is she's a very interesting interpretation of the lore of life, um, which is often kind of seen as a very hippie or lovey dovey, like, oh, I love all things that are living and embracing things. But she is the, she is cold mother nature, mother nature that in that cruel distant sense of unleashing, you know, storms on you. And, you know, you, she does not care. She has a goal to accomplish. Yep. And, uh, sh yeah, she is, in a sense, propagating life. But she does not. She values the grand total, not the individual pinpricks. She's all business. Yeah. And, uh, and she is by far the coldest. Like, she doesn't seem to. She, I think in some ways, she kind of, res like, she, I think she takes a lot of pride in her job but she probably also finds it very exhausting. Um, though there are some fun notes about her. She works with the city of Nangao, uh, which is uh, where all like the greatest master artificers are, where they create all like the war machines and war a machines. lot of the, the, the guns. Lighting the bastion. Yeah, a lot, of where, a lot of where the black powder is manufactured and stuff. And what's hilarious is that the lords of Nangao actually are very scared of Miao Ying. Um, it is not like the relationship between Zhao Ming and Shen Yang where the lords of Nangao actually resent Miao Ying because they kind of want to do their own thing. And sometimes she will leave them to their own devices, but she will often come down on top of them uh, to make sure they're behaving themselves. And they are terrified of her. Um, they would very much like, they think they're very important and awesome and should be, they're, they're like, Oh, we're the reason the great bastion is still there. It's our guns that are protecting it. We should be more important. We should be more powerful, more politically powerful. Miao Ying keeps them in check. Um, which has a very interesting relationship where Miao Ying probably has the least good relationship with humans of all the dragon kids. Yep, I think that's fair. Yep. And then the last dragon child that we know about is Shenzu. And we know very, Shenzu. very, we know very, very little about her. Uh, all we know is that Shenzu is the light dragon and that she brought hope. To Grand Cathay. She almost seemed to be more of like a mascot, and she's the youngest from what we can tell. She's either the absolute youngest or the second youngest next to Zhao Ming. But I suspect she is the absolute youngest. And uh, Shinzu being the light dragon is said to have brought a lot of balance because she kind of was, it seemed great to, to Grand Cathay, she was the antithesis to chaos in general. She burned away the corruption. She burned away that, that bad kind of darkness. Uh, but she vanishes and no one's really sure why uh, something happened and Shinzu left uh, without telling anyone. She turned into her dragon form and she went into the north. And the last person that saw her was Ursin, which plays into the story campaign of Total War Warhammer 3. And Shinzu uh, goes north and she goes far north, seemingly to the realm of chaos itself. Mm -hmm. Why? We don't know. And that's an awesome mystery. It's an awesome mm -hmm. mystery. Uh, presumably she went there for a purpose. And as the light dragon, she has a lot of power. She might not necessarily understand her power very well. And, uh, but I suspect her understanding of the world is very different 
from everyone else's because the lore yep. of light is a, it's, it's the lore of truth. It's a lore of understanding. So there are probably things that she understands that no, no one else does. Yep. Uh, and, and then, and for the record, I don't think that she's the dragon that uh, Archeon kills. Just, just mm -mm, saying, mm -mm. the dragon that Archeon kills is almost described as um, a relatively classic fire-breathing, chaos-affected dragon, and I do not think that um, it's likely to be her. She's just too cool in terms of where she sits in both the terms of the dragon family itself and the winds of magic that she's most influenced by to be so easily torn apart by that. And it speaks to one of my biggest issues that, for example, the End Times material had, where it focused entirely upon just tiny little pockets of the world and tried to pretend that was the entire world. Where creatures like, for example, this dragon would have been uh, a marvelous reveal at some point, even if the studio had just gone, we've got other parts of the world, why don't we just drop some of those bits in rather than saying, and then Grimgore killed everyone. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Hammond, uh, thank you. No. <laughs> For the last time. That was Lilith. For the last time. Um, but in any event, um, the, yeah, so Shinzu vanished into the north. I'm very, very curious how the old world's gonna handle Shinzu because technically she only just vanished. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious if they're going to talk about her being in Grand Cathay, because it'd be very interesting if she is not entrusted with a grand province. Why? Like, do mom and dad, like, is she the little, you know, is she the baby? Do they like to keep her close to home? Or because she's the light dragon, does she represent something that they're like, no, you don't, we don't want you in charge of provinces. We don't want you out there. We need you here. We need you in Weijin for some reason. And then she sneaks away. Because there's there's a lot or of possibly really... she's got a secret mission from mom. Yeah, yeah, could be mom or dad sent her away. Yeah, as part as yeah. part of the plan. Um, so uh, so that Shinzu, and then the last two dragons who we don't know their names. There's the shadow dragon who we know nothing about, which is very fitting for a shadow dragon. Um, I have a huge fan theory that the shadow dragon fled. Uh, that the shadow dragon being a dragon of justice uh, or that might have be very closely associated with justice and being able to not only conjure illusions, but see through them might have realized that the harmony of Grand Cathay is not what it appears to be. Um, and she may have also, he or she may have also seen what their parents were up to and not agreed with it. Um, yeah. Figured out what Shinzu and uh, Kui were up to and said, Nope, I'm not going to be a part of this and fled. And I think the shadow dragon went to Nippon. I think that's not a bad idea. Um, I think it's also worth stating that um, for all, it's very easy to see Cathay as this great overarching uh, pillar of awesomeness that does everything better than everybody else. Um, ultimately, it is going to fail massively. The end of the world is coming and it's going to fail. And to say that no one is expecting this and to say that there will be no characters that try to do something about that, I think is a failure. So having characters like, for example, unnamed Shadow Dragon that tears off and attempts to resolve things in a different way, I think is well worth it. <laughs> Shenzhou pulled a grim there. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, 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 Galileo, I would counter that that's what literally Shen Yang and Kui Yin are. 
Like they are the I, dragons of yin and yang. So it would be weird to have case. it repeat the children. And then the last dragon child who we don't know what their concept is. Like, are they associated with like a wind we don't know about? Are they a combination of all the winds? Are they a negation of all the winds? Personally, I, my personal theory, I'd be curious to hear if Andy has one, but my personal theory is that they are a combination of all eight winds. And I believe this dragon was the one that fell to chaos and became what we know as Flame Fang, who went yeah, off and fought Arcan. So that, that would be my um, general belief as well, because we are aware that there is another dragon, um, which I can't recall the name of. It's like Yin Lars, Yin Yard. Yeah, it, yeah, Flame Fang um, is its Western name. It, it, Flame it, Fang. Let's call it Flame Fang. Yeah, it has, a, it has a Eastern name. Yes, it does have an Eastern name. Um, uh, it's quite an old one. I can't remember where uh, it came yin, from originally. Yin be it's, it's Yin Ya Long. Yin Ya Long. Well, of course it is. Because um, I, I totally remembered that. I, I probably um, I probably uh, butchered the pronunciation, but I'll post it in the chat. It, it, it's good enough. Um, I'm pretty convinced that if that isn't tied together, then someone's not quite doing their job right because it's easy to do. It makes sense. You can create a tragic story for how this particular dragon fell. Um, and that is, I think, a great story yet to be told. Yeah, I I really hope they go with that because it'd be an awesome tragedy because supposedly, um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll call Yin Long just to make my life easier. Or Flame, Flame Fang, just to make life easy. Flame Fang supposedly laid waste to a lot of Cathay, like did a lot of damage before it fled to the West which would be a heartbreaking story. And also supposedly it devoured the eye of Shirian, which could yeah, be. Yeah. I seem to recall it was full of babies as well. Well, so um, the, didn't Archeon get swallowed by it and end up killing a whole bunch of dragon babies inside it. That's, yeah. So that's a long time ago. I read so, yeah. There was a weird thing in the Archeon book of like, not, it, it was also like made of people because it was resurrected. Like, Flame oh, Flame that's was right. resurrected. Oh, the flesh had slewed. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. I remember it was, that. it was, it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> it was proper crazy. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Flame Fang would be, it's Flame Fang is Horus. <laughs> but, uh, there are a not insignificant amount of parallels between the Primarchs and the Dragon Children. It's, it's a little on the nose sometimes. But, um, a little. Though I do think they are much better interpretations because there's a lot more dynamics to them, which I like. Um, also, there's not a fucking 18 of them. Jesus Christ. Or 20 with two missing. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah. So we don't know anything about the missing, the, the undivided dragon either. Um, I personally think it's Flame Fang. I would love a story of like, they go after the Eye of Shirian thinking maybe they could use it to help Cathay and then they get in and it corrupts them and they become a Zinchian dragon. Then well, there's a big war well, and we have all sorts of other stuff. We have a massive chaos assault, so presumably an ever chosen making its way into Cathay around about this is again off the top of my head around about 1300 1400. Earthquakes flash through, take down the bastion in several key places, and a massive chaos assault comes through, presumably with an ever chosen. So you've got perfect opportunities um, for horrible chaos artifacts to be dropped, studied cause something to fall and eventually turn into what allows Archeon to become the next ever chosen a couple of ever chosen later. Yes. 1310. When that, when Lord Quex decided, thanks. when Lord Quex decided I'm going to ruin all the empires in the world at once. <laughs> and he broke the dwarf empire and Cathay in the same day. <laughs> oh, Lord Quex, the bastard. <laughs> 
but uh in any event um so yes that is all the dragon kids uh a couple of their interesting notes about them before we get into their descendants is that yeah i've seen a couple people ask what are the emperor and empress up to the the real answer is we don't know um there is an interesting period known as like the age of darkness um which is that for about um for about a hundred two hundred years um the 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 both parents vanish without explanation shen yang and kui yin just they're totally gone and their kids have no idea where they went so uh a little bit of panic sets in and the kids start fighting among themselves because without mom and dad to like order them around they start uh yes age of darkness and disharmony thank you um so they start having disagreements they start fighting each other wars break out um and it gets worse and worse and then the monkey king shows up and the monkey king invades because apparently some skaven of clan eshin came up to the monkey king were like hey did you know the dragon emperor and them are gone you should be emperor and the monkey king went i like the sound of that the monkey emperor Ooh. <laughs> uh, because of course he got talked into that by the skaven i love that it's such a funny thing so uh the monkey king invades grand Cathay with his monkey warriors with the help of clan eshin and he actually successfully invades all the way up to wei Jin, and he takes wei Jin insanely and he sits upon the throne of the celestial dragon emperor and declares himself emperor and as a reward uh for their assistance he declares a skaven uh warlord kishkik of clan eshin to be his grand vizier his uh his advisor and at this point the Cathayan dragon children lose their shit they cannot a the monkey king sitting on dad's throne b there are fucking skaven in dad's house <laughs> that is that is too far <laughs> so the dragon kids set aside their differences finally and they unite in a big fight against the monkey king and what's crazy is he actually holds them off um with the mm -hmm. help of the skaven the monkey king is actually able to fight all five of them um and then miraculously mom and dad come home uh and shin yang and um uh kui yin uh very interestingly uh after this kind of 100 year period they just show up they just appear uh and they join the fighting and with them back the monkey king realizes he's totally fucked uh so the monkey king runs away uh he flees with his tail between his legs and he runs back to um to the mountains of heaven and the skaven get absolutely wiped and uh but a lot of bad things happen because of this where like a lot of zinchian cults really get their grips in a lot of parts of Cathay during all the chaos that's going on um a lot of other forces nefarious forces uh manage to slip in and it's just it's just a whole mess and uh where the parents went they never say they do not tell their children where they went but apparently they found something they discovered some secret because that's when shen yang kicks his plan into overdrive and he returned in roughly the uh, somewhere around circa 2400 of the imperial calendar which is yeah. about 100 years ish before the modern day so all of that has been building up to what's end happening now yeah the end times yeah. where presumably yeah. he is throwing his own hat into the gambit to try and pull something off yep so yeah fun uh and then the last thing which is arguably the most fascinating thing are the shooting oh, guns certainly. So the Shukin guns are the direct descendants of the dragons, but they are humans. They are not dragons. 
Um, because what happened is that the dragon children, being not technically full-blooded dragons, they are half dragon, yep. half whatever the hell Quayin is. Half um, mom. Yeah, half mom, yeah. A half <laughs> moon person. Um, where Quayin was in the form of a dragon when she conceived and gave birth to them, but they inherited some of her power. And she also taught them um, the arts of how to use the lore of Yin to transform themselves into a human form. And what's fascinating is that the lore of Yin, because it's it's not just Olgu, it's more profound than that. It's not an illusion. They are not like, they're not hiding in the guise of a human in the sense that they're really a dragon, but they just look like a human. They are genuinely turning themselves into a human. Yeah, I think um, an easy way to try and imagine this is um, if you try and step out of all of their individual mythologies and just look at them for what they are, they are the children of a shapeshifter and they themselves inherently have the shapeshifting ability inside them. And that allows them to, with the correct preparations, just shift into a human form. And that apparently comes hand in hand with a certain degree of interest in the human form. Yeah, so apparently um, the dragon children, um, and, and it's it's kind of implied that it, the idea comes from their parents of that y'all should have children with the humans. Um, and for most of the dragon children, it is not out of love. It is not out of passion. It is it is a duty. It is a it is part of their role. It is a job they must perform. They, to put it bluntly they get busy fucking a lot of people <laughs> because they have a ton of descendants. A it's ton. interesting, isn't it? Really yeah. interesting. This is a, of all the lore that has been added. This is by far the one that interests me most because if I was coming at this as a writer, um, the amount of additional, uh, the amount of, additional emotion that this adds to what is otherwise quite a bland set of heroes being heroes. This is proper relationship stuff. Sometimes there's going to be ones who are cold. There's going to be others that can't be cold. So they, the coldest person always falls in love. That's part of the cool stories that you can tell. And the fact that they have been going for thousands of years and have watched their lovers live and die and live and die for some, that will be heart-wrenching. For others, it will, if anything, make them more distant until eventually they meet another one that just touches them in a way that one did maybe thousands of years before. And that, I think, is um, an aspect to their characters that's never really going to properly come out in something like a war game, but most certainly can come out when the novels or comics oh, or God, possibly please, the please, role-playing Black game. Please. Um, when the role-playing yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah, role role yeah. game starts doing um, its in-depth exam in this you're going to end up with a whole host of characters that were the children of and will be treated by some as the children of that's going to give them an exceedingly important position in the celestial court or wherever else it is that they happen to be um they are going to be the daughter the granddaughters the grandchildren of the emperor directly and that mm. is extraordinarily fascinating. But it's not just that. There's going to be some who are carrying that blood and they're interweaving. Some of them are going to be great, 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 great granddaughters. The blood is now out there. The blood of the dragons is in the people of Cathay. And that brings about difference. And that's fascinating. So you not only have mm -hmm. these sort of 
interesting characters who are carrying interesting powers within them, you also have a host of super unexamined, fascinating, wonderful characters who are children of literal fucking dragons. This yeah. is a, this is extraordinary, yeah, please, and it's something please, that the game. Please role play game. Really, yes, I want to. Yeah, I want to play Shuken Gun. <laughs> this is going to be you know going up and saying you know my honored mother and actually speaking to them. My 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 father. This is the person. Who, what are they? How long do they live? Do they live for a very long time? Are some of them also ancient? There's going to be some really fascinating characters built out of this, and it's a part of the overall Cathayan world that's yet to be really expanded. And it's of all the things that it's added, the one that makes me go, "Ooh, I'd do this with that, and that with that, and that with that." And, Ooh, it's mm-hmm. very exciting. Yeah, Song anyway, of Power. Uh, Song thank of you Power, for the right, thank you, thank you for the goofy joke. Though, though, I suspect <laughs> that. Though it's there's a hilarious note, Quayan does not seem to mind the Monkey King nearly as much as Shin Yang does. Shin Yang fucking hates him, uh, to the point that Shin Yang uh literally has propaganda being put out in Cathay to try and convince the people of Cathay that the Monkey King is a chaos creature, where ev- the different mm-hmm. provinces of Cathay think the Monkey King is a different type of creature. And depending on the province, they think he's associated with a different god. So, like in the south, he's believed to be like a giant red gorilla that tears people apart limb from limb and drinks their blood. Whereas, like in the, I think in like the the east, he's supposed to be a bloated green orangutan that's covered in disease and filth, and he's very nurgly. Uh, and then in like the west, he's supposed to be a small spider monkey that's bluish, and he whispers in people's ears, and he convinces people to go mad and to be duplicitous and you know very Zinchian. And in the north, he's known as like a baboon with a big bare ass that just has a huge harem and he's screwing everything in sight and he's like he's indult he causes indulgence to follow wherever he goes you know and none of that's true that's that's not what the monkey king is like at all he's not any of those things it's just shin yang spreading propaganda to try and make the people of Cathay hate the monkey king and uh like turn that culture against them which is very very interesting um but uh so, um, but anyway, uh, going back to what Andy was talking about. So a couple of cool things we do know about the Shukin guns is that the Shukin guns are very, very, uh, they're not all magically gifted is a fun fact. Cause a lot of people see the Shukin gun Lord and Warhammer and go, Oh, that's it. There's actually significantly more dragon children than that. The Shukin gun Lord that you see in game are just those that demonstrate a very apt gift for magic. And when they showcase magic. that they have capable magic abilities, they are taught high magic. And then once they learn high magic, uh, based either on their parentage or maybe their personality or something, they are shunted to learn yin or yang. And then they specialize in that lore. Um, but you have to learn high magic before you can learn yin or yang. You have to master all the wins, then you can learn yin or yang, which is very interesting. Um, which does also speak to their potential age as well. Yeah, they are old. Um, most of yeah. these Shukigan lords, especially the wizard ones you see, they live much longer than humans do. Yeah. Um, easily. Um, they're they're especially some, another species. Yeah, some of them have been around for like easy centuries. They're not as long-lived yeah. as the dragon children because they're not they they have full-on human genes in them, so they will die eventually of old age, but they are much longer lived than regular humans. Um, uh, they're probably, they're probably somewhere between dwarf and elf as far as like lifespan goes. Does seem to be about correct. I mean, if they're learning high magic, high magic is a significant expenditure of time. 
because you need to master all eight ways. Appreciate that, Lion. Thank you, sir. High. Yeah, thanks very much. That's very sweet. Um, Thank you. But yeah, it's a it's it's a big thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, you're probably talking centuries. But um, like Andy was saying, one of the fun things is that it's very likely that the Shukin guns are probably closer to like very recent generations. So like their mother had you know had relations with one of the dragons or their grandmother yeah. or their grandfather whereas it's likely the further down they are the more diluted their blood becomes the more human blood they have the less dragon blood they have they likely are not as magically gifted and this is where we get all of the other dragon blooded children uh so like in the new shadows of change dlc the celestial generals are dragon blooded yeah. Um, but they don't have magical ability, but they are significantly stronger than humans. They're far more gifted in combat because they, they probably still live longer. You know, maybe they only live for two or three centuries as opposed to maybe like a thousand years, but they're, they don't age like humans do. And they're able to practice martial combat to a ridiculous degree, an elven degree of really mastering combat styles. And it's likely they're probably stronger and faster than regular mm -hmm. men. Um, I'd also add that um, if you have someone like, say, Mao Ying sitting at the top of a particular social structure, which she does, um, the chances of there not being some form of breeding program where you're actually getting dragon blooded breeding, mm. dragon blooded, which means that the blood um, potency does not necessarily thin. So that's also going to be a certain amount of uh, other types of dragon blooded characters who are maybe relatively closely related but almost certainly carrying blood of significant power because if you're looking to build a military force you're going to be looking to propagate these you're going to want more of them yeah and there are some interesting notes in the Cathayan lore that Miao Ying and Yuan Bo take a Yuan very uh, they take a very uh, shall we say calculating approach yeah. to their children um, totally. they, they are often said to not particularly be not not that they're not fond of them, but they are not emotionally attached to yeah. many of their partners and their children. They might have had rare exceptions. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, Some stories exploring that would be fun, or maybe just over time, they're like, it's I not worth so. it. They don't live long enough. Um, like, eventually they're going to die, so why get attached? But like Miao Ying and Yuan Bo in particular are very calculating about, I need this many children. Oh, some of my children, like Miao Ying has sent her children uh, like to defend the Great Bastion and stuff. She's very detached from them, which is why she's known as cold and aloof. She does not treat mm -hmm. with her children like Zhao Ming does. Zhao Ming is very close to many of his partners and his children, uh, which is another thing the dragons are kind of like, what are you doing uh, with him about? Like he actually seems to care for a lot of his descendants. Um, whereas like Miao Ying, there are some notes in the lore, uh, for the Cathayan book and some of the loading screens and stuff that, uh, like treating with her is stressful for a dragon blooded because all she cares about are your accomplishments and you are a tool to be used, um, in order to perform her role. Yuan Bo is very similar. There are notes from the, there's some actually really cool loading screen quotes about him from the perspective of his children, uh, from his descendants and they see him as their boss. They see him as someone they revere, not someone that they love, not, not in a sense of, you know, they, they, they very much agree with their father and they understand him, but they see him from the perspective that Yuan Bo does. Yuan Bo literally has a quote where he says like, um, humanity, the purpose of humanity is that they desire control to be controlled. That is 
That is a yeah. literal quote from you on Bo. Like he does yep. not think very highly of humanity. Looking at um, which one of the fun things though to explore with them is that each dragon child probably has a very distinct relationship with humans. How do they feel about humans? How do they mate with them? How do they treat their descendants? Do they like welcome them to come see them? And do they train them? Do they spend time with them? You know, I almost feel like Meow Ying's probably the kind that has like a number, like assigns numbers to them as opposed to names. Um, she, I'm sure she knows all of their names, but to her, they're, you know, they're calculations, they're resources to be spent. Whereas Zhao Ming is probably like, yeah, I show up to their birthdays. <laughs> yeah, I send them presents when they get married. I show up like I'm involved in my kids' lives, <laughs> uh, which is very interesting. Um, and that's a large part of, and like the dragon blooded are everywhere. When you're playing with Grand Cathay, the Longma riders are all dragon blooded. To ride mm -hmm. a Longma, which are sometimes known as spirit Kian as well, you have to be dragon blooded. They will not allow you to ride them unless you have dragon blood in your veins. Um, because there's some sort of relationship that's established there, or like a pact. Um, a regular human would not have any business trying to get on one of those dragon horses. They will kill you. Um, and uh, Which is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and so most, not all, but most of the celestial dragon guard are also dragon blooded. Um, They're probably the most diluted um bloodline wise uh because they're you know they're uh essentially just glorified bodyguards they're an elite rank but you know they're not able to ride the longma uh and while they're skilled warriors there are also regular humans that if they prove themselves well enough can also ascend to the rank of celestial dragon guard yep wasn't where the Habsburg dynasty were Cathayan <laughs> the good old chins yeah. yeah uh, uh, any thoughts on the implications of dragon-blooded people running around for vampires in Cathay? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think for Andy. So there's a whole thing of like Aberash and the whole dragon blood thing, along with Zacharias the Ever Living, where dragon blood, if it's like high enough quality and quantity, seems to cure the vampire curse Vampirism. and also make the vampire super duper strong. Um, where Zacharias and Aberash are like scary powerful compared to most other vampires. But how do you? With um, assuming the, that I'm not stuttering, oops. Um, uh, I we am can I hear you just fine. My side, because you're stuttering for me. Uh, only visually, we can hear you just fine. Oh, okay, cool. Um, I apologize for doing the robot. Oh, you're um, good. I am running through a mobile. Uh, so, I think broadly speaking, given the way that Cathay has changed from when most of the material was written for the undead, and it has changed significantly, it's going to have deep and abiding effects in terms of the butting of the two different types of lore and exactly where they sit. I think it is very fair to say that the entirety of Grand Cathay would be not just against what the vampires represent, they would be pushing hard to eliminate them. Largely because what the vampires represent is small, not vampires, probably the Cathayan dragon-blooded folk represent is almost gold doubloons in mm -hmm. terms of um, how awesome they are for the vampires, which means the vampires themselves are going to be very interested in getting hold of this pure essence, this, this vitae, this life that they can take um, from these dragon-blooded folk, which means in turn they will clamp down hard really hard it wouldn't surprise me if there's 
uh, unique versions of vampires over there, but equally, it wouldn't surprise me if they're almost entirely eradicated or pushed out. One of the uh, great, obvious developments that they've done with Grand Cathay is showing how they're one large society that's trying to work together in harmony. And anything that's disharmonious, uh, anything that lies outside the plan as it exists there, is going to be pushed to the periphery. Um, so the cultists are going to find it more difficult to move in. Everyone is working presumably together. The dragons are at the top and they are largely uncorruptible. So you don't have the same issues that the rest of the Warhammer world species confront, except for arguably the Lizardmen. And that is corruption rampant throughout everything. Uh, mm -hmm. Meaning that it is going to be very easy to identify those who are standing outside the norm. So cut a long mm. story short, it's going to be a hard life being a vampire over there. Yeah, and I, I suspect the jade-blooded vampires would be, which we know are still canon, which is very nice. Um, the the descendants of uh, mm. Harakte, I think. Um, I can't remember the name. That's why I didn't mention it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think it's Harakte. Um, yeah. But they are uh, they are probably very underground. Um, but I suspect there will probably be some very cool lore bits about them trying to abduct dragon children, experimenting yeah. on them, draining yeah. them. Um, and this also adds some really interesting potential for uh, Vashinesh because it said that Vashinesh wandered the world for a very long time and went to Cathay for a little while. Maybe he got a little dragon blood himself. Could explain why he was so goddamn scary and strong. <laughs> Manfred did the same. Later. Yeah, yeah, Manfred. Yeah, yeah. so there's yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. lot of really cool things that could happen um, with you those could interactions. Argue that Manfred made um, significantly less um, ingress there, given that it's not inside his book Libra Necris, um, because inevitably, if it was, then he would have made it, and it would have been in the yeah. book. So well, knowing knowing Manfred, he wasn't quite as successful. Yeah, though I I do love uh, Manfred has this. We'll have to do a thing on him sometime, but he has a really Manfred's fun thing great. where he's like he's literally gone around. Dream. He's literally gone around and chatted with all of the different bloodlines, which is such a cool yep. element for him. Um, are there any, is there any relationships between Napon and Cathay? Yes, there are. Um, they sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're enemies. It just depends. Yeah. Um, it's it's complicated. But uh, yeah, so uh the last, so yes, yeah, so that's the dragon children. I also saw a comment I really wanted to pull up because I thought it was super interesting, which is this: are there dragon blood descendants of the lost dragons still around? That's a great question. And I think that the answer is probably yes for some and uh, no for others. Um, and I think that that is uh, an aspect of the setting that's yet to be plumbed. If, for example, I got employed to write a book for Grand Café, that would be top of my list for interesting new NPCs to add to the already interesting setting. I would be taking one of the cities and I would have somebody there that nobody would expect. Someone who perhaps manifests something that is quite different to what has been manifested everywhere else. You'd need to make sure that you spent enough time detailing what everybody expects for Grand Cafe. But also one of the great strengths of role-playing games is that you can plumb into a whole bunch of extra details that you don't have time for when you're doing a war game. So yeah, I definitely think that um, at least one or two of those, it's not just that they could be around, they should be around because yeah. it makes it more fun. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of different ways to explore that of like, if you're dealing with someone like Shyama, where she's been gone for thousands of years, like... <laughs> At what point do the dragon blooded stop exhibiting dragon blooded symptoms like uh, uh symptoms? And like like Andy said, 
what if you're a something like many, many times great descendant and you just yep. happen to exhibit more than your ancestors did? And everyone's like, what the hell? Who are you related to? Because like, I'm sure they keep meticulous records about like who's descended from who. Um, unless and one of those that, records was lost. And I think that makes um, some really interesting points for Cathayan society, where in Cathayan society, it's quite possible that some in the empire, for example, uh, people show signs of magic. They show signs of divinity in that the gods select them, sometimes as children, and they're picked out and they're somehow seen as gaining revelation from the gods. In Cathayan society, they have something completely different. Anybody might be carrying the blood of dragons. Any of them might hmm. be. Now, now, the primary ones are tracked, but some of them from thousands of years ago could be carrying that gene. And that gene yeah, just pops up. Humans are going to be humans. There are going to be some yeah. dragon-blooded bastards running uh, around. Know, <laughs> for example, amongst the, uh, a rebel village or something similar. And mm -hmm. um, in comes the dragon to stop it. And then they see someone who looks identical to their lost sister or brother. That would just be or amazing. Even, yeah, or even like a dragon-blooded that's traveled and ends up having yeah. children in the Empire or Bretonia or totally. something. Like, ooh. There's all manner of really cool character types you can pull from that. Yeah, um, Maladel, yeah, that's another really cool idea. Like, there could be cults or groups that are obsessed with trying to, like, oh, we have to keep Shiyama's blood alive. We have to keep it. We have to, like, which could lead to um, all sorts of problems. That'd um, be a super cool cult to make as well. That's perhaps some um, sitting up by the river. Yeah. Um, and attempting to try and gain uh, access to, to the yeah, we, we know, courts. We know, there's a, we know there's a cult of, like, I think they're called the Ancestral... The ancestral monks, or shy, like they're like the ancestral monks of Shaiish or something like that, who tend to the river and they tend to the court of Shaiish that supposedly lies at the bottom. Um, and I think it'd be super cool if you had one or two of them kicking around, possibly carrying her blood. Yeah, awesome. And there's cool there's that. other fun like kind of angst things like if you have a dragon that's disappeared more recently, like Shinzu, how do her children handle that? Like, yeah, their their progenitor is gone. Oh my God! What does that mean for us? What's what's our station now? We don't like we can't talk to mom anymore. <laughs> what do we yeah, do? I love that. Yeah, so that's that's super duper cool. Um, and then the last thing that I think is really worth talking about with the Dragon Kids, uh, I think, is turning back a moment to Shiyama of the sh sh uh, the underworld because it's just such a fascinating thing. Of that, Cathay is the only race I know of that their underworld has a physical presence on the planet. Like there is a place you can go where the dead are and they are gathered to, and they don't seem to perform like the other dead. They hang on to all their memories. They don't seem to be preyed upon by demons uh, and they can be summoned back to the land of the living. And they show up as warriors to fight. Uh, like I imagine when details added to that, it will gain some additional uh, parameters. I'm not saying changes, but definitely parameters. Yeah. Um, and it's what, what's interesting is there's apparently a, there's apparently a court like Shiyama presides over some sort of realm that is down there where people live, but it's like, what goes on there? Yeah. Is it a good is place? A, is it a bad place? Like uh, what's going on down there? there? 10 courts, isn't there? It's yes. 10 the, courts, yeah, of, the ten courts of Shaish. Yeah. Ten in the depths of, of the dragon river. Yep. Yeah. And, and that, like that, living that to me is just awesome. Uh, um, I, that's something I'd want to dive into and very much um, elaborate upon, write about, detail it just sounds exciting yeah and it's like and there are some forces that would love to mess with that like demons would want to get in on that the oh yeah vamp the vampires or necromancers would be like oh man if we could tap into this look at all these spirits we could call upon and like how does necromancy work in cathay 
because the spirits of the dead are drawn to this specific place. Like, is there a unique interaction with necromancy? Like well, necromancy or... at its very heart is about not just spirits. It's about animating corpses. Oh yeah. Well, like the corpses um, I'm sure are fine, but like, yeah. I wonder if like, uh, like if it's more rare to see spirits, like are Karen yeah. race or hex race more rare well, hex rays aren't normal spirits, but anyway, oh, then, uh, yeah, like, they, like are banshees like not really a thing in Cathay? Really, they have their own equivalents. Yeah. Um, there, there'll be those who, for example, for one reason or another, couldn't find their way to where they should be going, lost spirits, um, other ones uh, manifesting in places they shouldn't be in certain rituals and need to be enacted. Yeah, that's, 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 that's called an apocalyptic scenario is what that is. <laughs> it is, and it's a shame that we don't know what would occur from that because it's exactly the sort of thing that you'd want to see in an end time scenario. Face octopus, I that that's such an awesome technical question. Uh, well, granted, once again, she does not seem to take the form of what she turns into. She legitimately turns into what she turns into. So yeah, it would probably work if it works on Cathayan dragons, which I assume it does because it works on like the weird um, Nagaroth sea dragon things. So I guess it's I don't know. The Karagul seems to have some kind of. You gotta remember, she's not a dragon. Yeah, but like when she turns into a dragon, she's she is a dragon, kind of like Doral, I, yeah. I don't know. Sure. But uh, yeah, uh, but uh yeah, so uh fascinating stuff. Honestly, fascinating stuff. I am really happy with how the dragon children have turned out so far. Um, yeah, I love them. Um I, for me, they're a relatively uh new addition. Obviously, they are in general, but for me, because I haven't played the game, they're not something that I've been aware of all the way through. I first became aware of them as a concept just before the game released because mm -hmm. Andy Hall came on with us at, with the Rookery um, and he did a, an episode the night before the game was released. Um, that was super fun. <laughs> it, it's yeah, out there awesome. somewhere. If you want to go see well, how excited Andy was for his game to be releasing the next day, um, it's over there on Rookery Publications' website, um, uh, YouTube one. And that was super fun. I first became aware of it because everyone wanted to know exactly how the Dragon Kids were born. Um, and... And ever since then, I've dabbled lightly. And the more I've read, the more excited I've got by them. And now that I'm, for my own personal games, working on a version of Nippon as well, it's done nothing more than uh, really take away the constraints that many of the lore building for Warhammer sort of shackle you with, um, given that their Grand Cathay is so very different to any of the other setting materials that have been built for the Warhammer world. It's mm. almost a new setting entirely, and it even takes established parts of the Warhammer world that do work definitively one way or another. Like, for example, the Winds of Magic. And they've mm. gone, no, culturally, they will be seen through these sort of eyes, which means that these are going to be perceived in an entirely different way, and they're also going to be used in a different way. And for someone who is who has been to a degree constrained by Games Workshop's very precise definitions of how these individual systems worked, it was a revelation where you could go, well, if they can do that there, then there is absolutely no reason why that can't happen here, even as close as, say, Tilia, when Tilia gets re-examined. Perhaps it will have its entirely own unique view on how exactly magic works. A unique view that perhaps hasn't been mm -hmm, strongly mm -hmm. imported and placed upon them by the elves, which is what happened in the Empire approximately 200 years ago, uh, where all of their magical knowledge got replaced by elven magical knowledge. And that is the winds of magic as we understand it today. So for me, I adore it all. I'm almost unreservedly. I, I'm very <laughs> much... I say almost. 
Um, yeah. I'm very I much know. excited to see it be expanded and for it to have depth because at the moment it's quite black and white. And by that, I mean, there's not a lot of depth or understanding. Yeah, good old, good old war game view. <laughs> yeah, that's the war game yeah. top-down view. That's exactly it. Where you're looking for um, all the nitty-gritty and all the details, all the shades of grey that lie in between, and then all the colour that you can add once those shades of grey have been established. So, yeah, it's a setting that, for me, is just gagging for expansion, and I can't wait to see more of it. Yep. All right. I am going to quite literally blitz through all the banner questions very, very fast because uh, we're almost we're pretty much out of time. Uh, what are the Dragon Children's opinion on the Ulthuan dragons? Really, really fun. Actually, uh, the Ulthuan dragons, the Cathayan dragons dis are disgusted by them because they let elves ride them. Ugh. Yeah, that. <laughs> you let lesser beings ride you. Ugh, gross. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they go. Why would you serve? Why would you allow lesser beings to? like ride you are you their slaves and the of course the Ulthuan dragons are like no they're our partners and the same dragons go gross so they're equals to you mm, y'all are shameful you're a disgrace to what a dragon is so yeah and it's really also worth saying um just as one last fa mm. fact mm, let's argue that one last detail um that the dragons that have existed outside of Cathay that we very much know very well are significantly devolved from the original mm -hmm. dragons that were kicking around during the time of the old ones and beforehand. Compare the fathers and the mothers of dragons and their enormous sizes with 10 generations later, the far smaller dragons, the far less intelligent, the far less magically capable dragons that we see kicking about. We don't have a big, huge in Drowdnir anymore um, sitting over in the mm -hmm. High Elf lands just waiting to be woken up. Imrit's dragon is a piddly thing in comparison. Um, even though that dragon is still a big dragon. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not talking about a dragon that could be the size of a mountain range. So I think they don't just see them as lesser because they are they can be ridden. They see them as lesser because they are lesser. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, no, like I knew dragon -blooded I saw your dad and you're you're just a pale comparison. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, why are Zaming Miaoying favored by uh the oh, so each of the dragon children has a different relationship with their parents and it's family dynamics. Like that's like, you could ask the same question about humans. So yep. family dynamics. That was easy. Next. <laughs> uh, what info have we got on the new items? Uh, what items do the other two have? So uh, the long story short, um, Miao Ying has a helmet piece or like a circlet thing that was gifted to her by her father that augments the Thank winds God. of magic. And then the, the artificers of Nangao uh, made her a set of van braces that are like super Those little cool badass glove things she wears. They made those for her. They kind of look like they might have been, they either made an imitation of her scales or maybe made by her scales, but she then further empowered them with the wind of yin to give them magical properties. Uh, Zhao Ming was given his little horn headdress thing by his mother as a gift that augments heavily the winds of magic for him. And then he forged for himself uh, uh, some uh, items that he carries on his person that further uh, augment his powers. They channel the wind of Shaman to literally repair his scales as he's fighting, which is super badass. It's um, awesome. Yeah, and then Yuan Bo has a sword that's forged out of one of his father's fangs, which is nuts. <laughs> uh, and he's also got his jade armor, which uh, has pieces of jade in it that he can see through as if they were his eyes, giving him 360 view, which I have no idea how that works on his brain. That must be hard. But what's really cool is that his mother and his father can also see through them. So they can always see what their son is up cool. to. Um, yeah, literally cool. hel helicopter parenting. Oh boy, <laughs> on a freaking shelf. 
<laughs> yeah. And then uh, the other two, I suspect Lee Dow is probably going to have like a really big spear or halberd of some sort. I suspect he's going to be very big, heavily influenced by like Romance of the Three Kingdom legendary characters. Um, and, you know, one of the most famous weapons from those age are those halberd type fights. So he's probably going to be very based on that. Yin Yin, I think, is going to have a bow. Uh, because it makes sense for her being a grand admiral because she can shoot from her ship uh though i expect her bow is going to be fucking terrifying compared to most bows because a dragon is firing it um yeah uh what ways does Zalbing's madness manifest so some of it is propaganda some of it is real um his the real way his madness manifests is that he literally hears the great Maul talking to him and he talks back to it um now whether I mean, is that madness or is that just a state of affairs yeah. Now it certainly makes him look crazy because he's talking to someone that no one else can see. Um, and uh, there are implications that he might see things that are not there, or maybe they really are there. And he's just the only one that can see them uh, because Warhammer is creepy like that. Um, but a lot of the madness is that he cares about humans and he actually associates with his children, his followers and the other dragons are like, Oh, clearly he's lost his mind because otherwise he would not dishonor himself. So, so yeah. Um, why were Yin Yin and Li Dao assigned to their respective provinces? We don't really know. Uh, presumably, Li Dao is probably a terrifying fighter and relentless in his savagery. So that's probably why he was sent to deal with an endless war in the South. And uh, Yin Yin, uh, I don't know. We don't know enough about her really to answer that yet. What was Shenzhou's job before she went missing? The only hint we have is in the opening cinematic to the Cathay campaign, which is that uh, she brought light to grand Cathay. she fended off the darkness and with her life absence the darkness goes stronger and therefore throws the world out of harmony so she apparently acted as a counterbalance to chaos just by existing um which you know lore of light kind of makes sense <laughs> you good andy <laughs> um uh what about the elves uh what do oh what do the lizardmen and the elves think about the lures of yin and yang <sighs> they probably think it's a little weird I, I don't know. That's a that's a really complicated question that we don't have any. You know, that's almost a question that's worth spending time on. So not right for right now, because I think that's a really good one. So Fader, if mm. you're still kicking around and you see us doing a stream that this is related to in future, for example, uh, connections between species, different magical traditions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ask again, because I think that is a fascinating question. Yeah, that that would be very interesting. Yeah, don't have time for that. Mm. Sorry. Um, if Shiyama is the spirit dragon said to somewhere in the dragon river, uh, uh, what is Shiyama's rest south of the dragon river? That's probably where she died. Almost assuredly. Shiyama's rest yeah. is almost assuredly where she transitioned into whatever she became or presumably died. Um, do I agree with the Lord of magic that was associated with the dragon children? So we've seen so far. Yes. Uh, I think the lords of magic for them are fine. Um, it's, it's a little messy because of like their colors, but if you start really exploring how the elemental winds are represented versus the winds of magic, as we know them in the West, it makes much more sense. Um, it's still a little weird, in a few places, it's, but it's, it's, yeah. I think it's also worth adding that we are dealing with a war game here rather than necessarily a pure reflection of what the characters are capable of doing. It's very likely they can channel all the winds of magic anyway. I mean, oh, yeah. if their kids can do it, they can do it. If yeah, kids can do yeah. high, they can. So in order um, to wield, yeah, yin and yang, you have to be able to wield all eight exactly. wins. Exactly. So it's not that they can't do all those other things. They can almost certainly do all those other things. It's just those are the ones that have been picked out to make work best for the war game and to best reflect their characters according to how they've built them. So long story short, they can probably do a lot more. Limitation of the medium. <laughs> Uh, question yeah. must be asked: How would Emric and Meowing actually feel about each other if they met? 
as much as everyone loves the memes and shipping them together, um, I honestly think they would not get along. They represent two very different ideals, and Miao Ying is probably the least tolerant of other species. Uh, yeah. And Emmerich is like the living embodiment of everything the Cathayan dragons dislike about the High Elves. Yeah, um, I, I think that that would be a match not made in the heavens or the celestial realms. Nope. Yeah, but the artwork is very cute. Um, it is. How would dragon children taught other races? Not great. They would always see them as lesser. They're they're very yeah. speciesist. Zhao Ming is literally the only one that's said to be friends with anyone that's not dragons. Yeah. I don't even know if the other dragon kids have friends. <laughs> Probably don't. Um, is Yuan Bo also the head justice of Cathay as well as regent executioner, spymaster, poet, and bureaucrat? Uh, kind of. Yeah. I mean, kind of. Yeah. I mean, who else is going to be doing that job? if you're looking for who's going to be making the top decisions other than the emperor himself. So pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Yuan Bo is the Andy law of Grand Cathay. He has all the hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He is wearing all the hats. Uh, is Indian interested in trade and commerce? Yes. yes. That is her job. That's yep. a huge part of her job. So yeah, I would say Absolutely. so. I, I think she's also given the character that we've been given almost certainly um, a known entity amongst many of the ex external and neighboring uh, realms. So she will almost certainly be known by Nippon, by parts of um, Koresh down into end of any of them. She's the one who's most likely to have been contacted with and acting as a bridge in some respects through to Cathay. So she's probably not just trade and commerce, but diplomacy, because there's no mm -hmm. other real route into diplomacy other than, I mean, no, even then, no, that's the real route in, because that's where the vast majority of their trade is coming in. Yeah, I would not be shocked if there is upcoming new lore where it's like a Phoenix King has probably met Yin Yin. It's like, ah, oh, look, it's yeah. the Dragon Empress. <laughs> I, I think that that's a very likely outcome because in the end, they're going to want to try and take the Dragon Kids as a whole and introduce them to the wider Warhammer world because what's the fucking point of having them if you don't? So they're going to need the easy routes for them to do it. And Yin Yin, who has yet to be really fleshed out anyway, is a perfect opportunity for that. Yeah, also, a lore of beast embodiment being a diplomat sounds hysterical. It's uh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think it speaks to how the Cathayans take things in a different direction, which is one of the reasons why I really like it. Yeah. Uh, is Zhao Ming at all aware of the old world's mastery of alchemy? Yes, 100%. Uh, he's literally yeah. the lord of Shenyang where all of the caravans come. He, If anything, he probably deals the most with the old worlders. Um, like Yin Yin deals a lot with like End and Ulthuan, especially, yeah, and all those Ulthuan. guys. But like, if you're coming from Talea or the Empire, any of those guys, it's uh, for them, it's generally better to take the caravans than to sail because sailing across the old the, the oceans is a bitch. And also, Nagaroth and Lustria are in the way, and there's no there's no isthmus that you can sail through like there is in our world, you know. Teddy Roosevelt didn't dig out the Panama Canal. <laughs> so uh, you have to go around, which is just awful. Um, yep. So yeah, he deals with humans. Like he deals with the old world more than anybody else. So I'm sure he knows a lot. And he, he also welcomes like literally illegal wizards. So I'm sure he is all too happy to meet the empire wizards that travel with the caravans and say, Hey, let's talk. Let's talk shop. Come on in. Let's chat. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a reason in the Immortal Empires trailer you see Zhao Ming and Balthazar yep. Gelt fighting side by side. That is not an impossible scenario by any means of the imagination. Those two would probably actually get along very yep, well, and it, it would probably be kind of creepy. Uh, <laughs> they're both a little off. Even though Gelt's a dick, but sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, actually, funny. I think Zhao Ming is probably more human than Gelt is, which is really ironic. Agreed. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that needs to be our next year. I need to know why you hate Gelt so much. I'm so curious. Um, anyway, uh, what does Zhao Ming do, if anything, to ensure the land trade of the old world isn't upset by the various threats of the Dark Lands? Uh, he's friendly with the ogres, and he also, like, he said, remember, the caravans aren't just going one way, they go both ways. They take supplies and trade and money both ways. So he's also sending garrison, like uh, troops. He's sending agents. Like he wants people to make it back. Otherwise, there's you know, there's no point. So I would say he's very heavily involved. Mm. Um uh what are the odds we see one of the lost dragon chill shows the chaos champion? If so, which god do you think they go with? Uh chaos champion, no, corrupted, sure. Um, and it's probably Flame Fang, and Flame Fang is said to be a Zinchian Chaos Dragon. Yeah. Uh, the Dragon Emperor's put a bunch of yeah, himself I mean, into the I, I think the chance of one of them falling is that. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, you go. Oh, uh, we no, already answered this earlier. The chance of one of them falling. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, I'll just move on to the next one. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there a pressure for the Dragon Children to make children? Uh, yeah, probably. I imagine there is an incredible probably. amount of pressure. I imagine that that's going to get dealt with um, in future expansion because there is a lot there to unpick, some of which could come out very unfortunate if they're not careful. Yeah, I there is probably a notable role of there is a duty to have X amount of children uh, because they, they play important roles in the military and in the bureaucracy of Grand Cathay. Um, and for some of the dragons, it's probably like... I imagine for some of them, there, there's different challenges, I think. You know, it's like you, you might have the likes of Miao Ying, who's disgusted by humans and might be kind of like, ugh, but it's like, it's my job. So I, I am distant from it, but I perform it to perform my role. Whereas Zhao Ming, I could see having conflicts of dad wants me to have X amount of kids, but I only want to do this with people I genuinely love and care for. Um, and that's not producing the amount of children that dad thinks I should be producing. But mom says I should follow my heart. <laughs> like there's a lot of really interesting drama that could be there. Um, yeah, agreed. Uh, if Cathayan dragons were to somehow meet with the named Stormcast dragons, how would that meeting go? Probably weird. Um, Krondis and Karazai, I, mm, that would be, mm, that's a, that's a good question. I don't have enough time to delve into that as much as I would like no, to. I think that's one we want to take up <clears throat> another day. <laughs> yeah, that, it would be weird, um, would yeah. be the answer. Uh, I think they would like them more than most of the other Warhammer dragons, but they also worked with the Lizardmen, so that would probably cause some conflict. Uh, how do the dragon children view the Lizardmen nowadays after their rocky history? Um, the, the, yeah, the Cathayan dragons very much see, I think, the Lizardmen in the sense of, I think they see them as lost children. Yeah. Um, I, th I think they see them as they don't know what they're doing and they are chasing after parents they never understood. Um, so I do think there is a sense of, the Cathayans do not seem to hate the Lizardmen because they seem to understand that the Lizardmen are as opposed to chaos as they are but they also do not agree on a lot of things. There's a lot of resentment there, but I also think there's some not sympathy. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's some like uh, pity. I, I, think I would say it, pity. I think sympathy is not quite right because I'm not entirely sure sympathy is a strong dragon emotion. Um, yeah. I would think it's more likely to be just general contempt. Yeah. Contempt. Um, yeah. Contempt would be better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I would not say they hate the Lizardmen. I, I think they are sometimes annoyed by them, but I think yeah, they, no. I think they're much like the High Elves, where the High Elves don't hate the Lizardmen, they don't like the Lizardmen, but they understand that the Lizardmen are not necessarily their enemies. Um, but they probably also understand that they don't really want to be on the Lizardmen's bad side if they can avoid it. 
um, because the lizardmen can be very problematic because um, they're the slawn are very dangerous. The slawn are super fucking dangerous, even for the likes of the dragon children. Yeah, children, the old ones. <clears throat> and then uh, this will be the last thing from Hammond. Well, actually, no, hold on. I want to address this because this is always a nitpick. No, the lizardmen are not automatons. They seem like automatons from a human perspective. They are nothing like automatons. They are far too bestial. They do feel emotions, but their emotions are very different from ours because they're cold-blooded and they're reptilian, but they do feel things. Like, Tehenuin is said to be a fiery orator who gives insane speeches that moves the Lizardmen, even the source of the crossbars. Exactly, which means they have to be able to be moved. Yes, and, like, the Lizardmen feel rage when they're dealing with, like, demons and stuff. It's just that their emotions are very alien. Um, but they know they feel emotions. Uh, anyway, do you think there could be a Shukagun legendary Lord Sun or daughter of Shinzu DLC that the story would be to find mom? How likely zero of 10 as much as I would love that total war. You have to remember, we have a very limited amount of slots. We have a very limited yep. amount of assets and time. And when you are, you have already established that the dragon children are legendary Lord level then the other characters kind of have to be around that level of interest or importance. I think you'll see the monkey King. And then I think you'll see the other two dragon children. And that's going to be it. Honestly. Yeah. Now as a legendary I... hero, maybe. Um, but I don't think it'll be about finding Shinzu. The, the story of total war Warhammer three has already taken Shinzu story as far as they're allowed to go with it. Um, it, the fact that games workshop even let them use Shinzu shocks me because it kind of introduces some complications for the old world because it establishes that Shinzu is around. Um, but uh, I, I would say very much that, no, they are. Uh, uh, I don't think you'll ever see a Shukangun named character until like a role play game or we get like an army book that expands on the lore. But like for yep. a role play game, you'll see Shukangun fucking everywhere. Because uh, agreed. But uh, yeah, no. Uh, I think for Total War, they're just going to be your nameless generic characters. Yep. Though, like I said, if they did give me like a legendary hero who's like the eldest living child of Shinzu, that would be fucking awesome. I'd be down for that. Okay. Uh, I've seen this joke a lot of times of, could the changeling be the same race as the Moon Empress? Um, I don't think so. Like, I think the no. changeling, I honestly... No, I, because the yeah. changeling's a demon. <clears throat> It's an yeah. actual definite demon. Um, now, you could argue that it's potentially an ascended uh, demon prince, but it's not a demon prince. It's been quite clearly defined um, as a demon and as a, as a part of Zinch's overall pantheon. So the answer would be no, unless they decide to change it. Last question. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, uh, I was off this week because Lindsay was ill, so I did almost no streaming this week at all. Um, so next week, I'm going to start streaming up again. So uh, you might see me streaming it next week. We'll see. I've got a bunch of um, side episodes that I'm doing for Lawhammer because there's a bunch of rather yeah. important things that need to occur. Poor, um, so poor Lord Paul. <laughs> um, we're busy organizing ourselves some taping um, for that in the background. Um, but yeah, I intend to do that next week. Okay. Okay. Last two questions for real. This is a great question. I don't that there's a lot of interesting things that could be explored there. I bet there is some very interesting drama between the different bloodlines. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that would be at the heart of the politics. Yeah. And this, I genuinely think this is going to be explored. Um, I honestly think Moonclaw and Kuei Yin would be very antagonistic towards each other, especially if they fix the timeline. Like I think they should. And Morsalib is what destroyed the race on the moon that, that they'd be stupid not to do that. 
um, because it's such a good story. And so Quayen being the last child of Manslib and then uh, Moonclaw being the only child of Morselib, they would go like that would be a hell of a showdown um, with some fascinating lore implications. Let the let the aliens fight. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, all right. Anyway, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, we are well over time. So uh, we appreciate y'all being here. Tons and tons of people tuned in today. So really appreciate y'all all showing up. Um, we hope y'all are really enjoying Lorebeards. Um, just for quick uh, last couple things. A, if you haven't already, uh, bots should have been posting it throughout the stream. Please, please, please go subscribe to Lawhammer and Rookery Publications on YouTube and Twitch. Um, they're awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, Rookery resumes when? Oh, it's a good question. I should double check that, but I think it's a week Saturday. Uh, so, so not this not Saturday, Saturday, but next Saturday. Saturday after. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, uh, Rookery Publications uh, is a company that Andy is uh, founded. Uh, yeah, I founded it with some yeah. super awesome people. Yeah, and they do a lot of general role play stuff. Um, but they invite like some of the most amazing authors and game creators and all sorts of stuff. Like literally, people from all different. Uh, corners of spheres you're going to be interested in they also uh, help create and sell books that are good for any rpg system which is fantastic uh, so if you play D, their stuff will work for you if you play warhammer fantasy roleplay fourth edition their stuff will work for you if you play i don't know fucking uh Cthulhu, their stuff will work for you uh, man i'm running a roleplay systems uh so uh check those out and buy them please uh and then uh, also Lawhammer, where he's running uh, The Enemy Within, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, 4th Edition. Uh, he's running his own version of it. It's not the same you'll find in the printed books, but it's True. fucking incredible. Um, oh. And uh, it's amazing. I literally have been keeping up with it. And I keep I need to do streams about it because I have so many things I want to posit on without Andy being able to tell me if I'm right or not. And just let our <laughs> community get it wrong. And then him be like, God, they're going the wrong direction. But <laughs> so that's us- the fun. <laughs> This, this will be so fun. Uh, there are so many things he has dropped where I'm like, I love that. I would not do it that way, but I love it. I'm really interested to see where this is going to go. Um, like, and a lot of special characters have been getting name drops. There's been Malakor, uh, Malakith has had a, some moments and some cool stuff. Bellacor has made some cool moment appearances. Um, uh, Carl Franz is going to play a very critical role. <laughs> funny you a, should say that <laughs> yeah that was a that was a pun that i did not intend <laughs> well um also very importantly two things uh if you if we get to five thousand subscribers on Lawhammer on youtube uh, i will release the queet cut <laughs> the, the, the the snyder queet cut uh which has been a heavily requested video for like three years um i've actually made some really nice progress on it this week i started recording a little bit and then i found some music i want to use in the video but i have to buy the licensing to it but anyway so some progress has been made on that which is nice and uh but i will not release it until uh andy law hits 5,000 subs on youtube we're almost halfway there so go sub for the love of god go sub share it with your friends and go watch the show it's literally great to watch with friends um i spend a ton of time watching it it's fantastic i really cannot talk enough about how good it is um and he also does like a lot of other like side rules and stuff um like i'm playing wolf up i'm playing the enemy within though i'm doing the book version uh, with some of my own edits but i'm doing the enemy within on my uh secondary channel right now and it's been a lot of fun and i've been using some of andy's house rules um oh. because they just make the game run better um and it's uh it's nice you can't subscribe a second time yeah you can't make another account <laughs> <laughs> cheat the system no, but anyway uh don't actually do that uh but yeah dude that's fine but uh don't actually do it but do it. um uh and last thing 
Uh, yeah, last thing is that the vote for next week's Lorebeards will be on Andy's channel. Um, yes, as well. So you have to go find me. Yeah, so uh, subscribe to him. That way it shows up on your community tab and uh, the vote will be there and we'll uh, let you guys decide. And um, I, I will end on one other thing as well. And that's that I found this stream particularly fascinating, super fun, um, beyond the fact that I'm a bit jittery and juttery now because I'm coming through on an iPad and a mobile phone I, rather than... You know, at least at least the sound quality is actually not bad. <laughs> but at least I'm here. Um, but beyond that, I found it super fascinating. But I found it fascinating because this is a subject that I don't know very well. Now, for those of you who have known me from other jobs that I've done, I know Warhammer really very well. I bought every single book that it's um, ever released. I've played every game and I've collected pretty much every single army. But I haven't played Total War 3. And because of that, I've got some enormous gaps in my knowledge um, for the extra stuff that Andy Hall and the team over there have been adding over the course of time. So we were discussing methods for us to potentially review that, discuss it, and uh, show people who, for example, may know me better from, say, the warmer fancy roleplay side of things and what we can take from Total War and bring into um, our games elsewhere. So um, we haven't decided exactly what we're doing yet, but we're going to sit down, have a little chinwag between ourselves and figure <laughs> out how we can do um, a, a good stream that uh, can educate me and hopefully educate everyone else as well about the differences between Warhammer as a whole and Total War and how it brings um, things to uh, the, the Total War. For example, <laughs> Grom. Grom should not be in Total War 3. I mean, what the fuck is that? But Genuinely Grom a funny story Total behind War that. Yeah. And Grom kicks ass. Um, and so discussing all those fun little extras and perhaps discussing some of the units that you get that are unique to the game and how they could perhaps be taken over into other games as well be something we're, we're currently beavering away at in the background. So be aware that is coming soon-ish. Yeah. And uh, yeah, another th fun thing to do is would actually be one day we'll have to do is there's actually a lot of enemy within references in Total War Warhammer that mm. go over a lot of people's heads. Like a lot of people do not understand why some of the settlements they picked for the Empire are where they are, um, which would be really funny to go over with you publicly and let you explain mm. why these places got selected and why they're That'd also super important. fun. I'd love that. Because there's a hilarious amount of references to the enemy within that just nobody gets. <laughs> so anyway. Thank you all for watching. Uh, I will be back in a few hours. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to stream Total War 3 or Baldur's Gate. I don't know. One of those two. Um, but because uh, I might play some more Yuan Bo because uh, embargoes. But uh, anyway, that's it. <laughs> I'm my outro. Yeah, bye-bye. 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 <laughs>